Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Turkey Hunt's one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light. Go farther, stay longer. Okay, right up top, if you hate dogs, quit listening. That almost make me have to quit listening, but... But I don't, like, I'm conflicted. I'm going to stick it out because maybe this will, like, even though I own one. Yeah, it's complicated for me. If you love it, let me put a positive spin on it. If you love dogs, if you love our furry friends, stick around. That's a be- that's a better way to put it. Yeah. I was going to say, if you actually Why go dark hate, negative? hate dogs, then just no. F you. Don't hate them. But my brother the other day was asking me. He was He was disappointed to hear. I, we were kind of talking about if everyone in your family, uh, I don't want to use the word died, but like went away. I was saying if everyone in my family went away, I would go get rid of this dog. Our dog. I'd find someone that wanted a dog. Why? And he just felt that was the most cutthroat, cold-blooded thing he'd ever heard. Yeah, I've heard th- I heard that story through the grapevine, and I've personally <laughs> retold that story at least three or four times. Sort of, a, a, you too, Ron. Yeah, I've told. Yeah, that story. So, sort of like a, explaining who Stephen Rennell is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, what's your problem with dogs? You just like extra work, extra baggage. I don't like. I'm didn't gone you have, like, a lot. I'm gone a lot, and it's just another thing I got to think about. Yeah, but your kids and your wife. But they're but in this situation, they've uh, um, gone to heaven. I don't want to think of something bad happening to him. It, it, we're talking about the situation in which I now have to take care of the dog by myself and always be gaming out what I'm going to do with the thing when I I'm think, gone. I think that's sad because you're going to need a friend if they're gone. Well, you still be here. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd have a different relationship with your dog if it was a working dog, Steve. Oh, you know, if it was a dog that was doing stuff for you. 
It changes the whole dynamic. Clay, listen. I almost just said to you I've had way more dogs than you'll ever have, but that's not true. <laughs> but for most people in this room, I've had way more dogs than you will ever have. Okay? Way more than you will wait, ever wait, have. You, you as an adult have had way more dogs? No, as a kid. As, we had a new dog count. every two weeks. That doesn't count. We always well, have. Yeah, but that doesn't count. My old man one time. You have to get one from a puppy, let it grow up and die, and go to the vet and euthanize it. That's owning a dog. Listen, we had a dog one time. Here's how this dog came into our life. My old man was driving down the road to go rabbit hunting and saw a beagle walking down the road and called the dog into his truck, and we had that dog for years. <laughs> and then he gave it to our neighbor. Did you turn it into a rabbit dog? It did rabbit hunt, but I don't think it ever got good. I think that's why he gave it to the neighbor. Another time he goes and gets a dog and it would get, it liked to play fetch. So it would take green tomatoes out of the garden. So my dad brings it to like, he would bring things to like the farm, you know, like the euphemism kind of way to get rid of a dog. But this dog, he literally brought to his friend's farm 11 miles away. A couple days later, we're eating dinner and I look out the window and here comes this dog named Akela. Here comes this dog streaking past the window. Carrying a green tomato in his mouth. <laughs> that son of a bitch had found our house. And then it went like to the farm. That was that. It was just never, whatever he brought it, it didn't come back. Oh, he was ruthless with dogs. He had a cat, Maud, that had babies in his shoe and then ate the babies out of his shoe. Yeah. Think about that, Corinne. <laughs> Steve, who, did, he, did he wear the shoes again? Don't know. Don't know, I was very young. But then he had another cat that he tamed named Fig the Cat. I told the story because he, then he took it to a pig farmer to try to castrate it and the cat fought him oh, off. Yeah. yeah. A lot of dogs. Steve, who all do we have uh, <laughs> joining us this, this morning for this <laughs> lovely podcast? Why we have Ronnie Bame, not my first employer, but my most um, impactful employer that I ever had. Thank you, Steve. Learn more from Ronnie. I still use Ronnie's tools that I stole from him. <laughs> All those years do, ago. Do you, I especially like my tools that say Ronnie on them. So you, <laughs> you, you posted a picture of making a birdhouse with Jimmy with a pair of yellow tin snips. Yeah, with your name and on it. And then I spread it open on my phone and I could see Ronnie on it. Oh, like yeah. you, had no, you didn't care. No, so I have your drift pin that I stole from you. I have tin snips I stole from you. I think I have one of your tape measures. Yeah, stuff's great. Great quality tools. Yeah. All He's these like, years later. I didn't get no Christmas bonus. I'm taking these tin snips. <laughs> they never got a Christmas bonus. No, we, we, you paid us really well. Yeah, we, we tried to take care of you. No, it was like in terms of when I worked for Ronnie, I remember one time, um, I remember one time being in college and had spring break. And then I played a week of hooky. Mm -hmm. So I took my spring break, played a week of hooky, and you sent us out of town to do a job. Yeah. And we, and we worked 80 hours a week down there. It was some crazy job. And it was like they had to get something done during shutdown or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember coming back from that, and I didn't do shit for months. You had money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was just like, oh, I'm set. Do you remember that time I sent you and Danny to go pick up a welder? Yeah. I, I didn't even tell this story now. I think you can. Okay. This, yeah. all right, we're going to tell the story real quick. We did a job for a guy from West Virginia. I, I can't remember what state he was from, but he was doing a job in, like, in- They were out of West Virginia. They yeah. were millwrights yeah. out of West Virginia. Right. And they contacted me for a support crew. Because they were behind. Right. I think they were doing a job for Amway. Is that too much yeah, detail? Yeah, it was Amway. No, Amway. Okay. They were doing a job for Amway. They called into Calvary. They, they were fell behind in schedule, and so they brought in TLI, Ronnie's company. Mm -hmm. 
Then somehow he got into a situation where uh, he couldn't pay Ronnie. So Ronnie has us come into the office. We always had to be there at six, which is hard because I used to drink. But he has us come in earlier one day, me and my brother Danny. Mm-hmm. And he says, here's what you got to do today. Take the Toyota. You're going to take truck. this truck down there. And he owed you four grand yeah. or something. Yeah. And you're going to take the welder, right. his welder, and you're going to bring it back here to this shop. Right. But you had to go in early. Yep. Go in early before anybody showed up. And it'll just look like one of the crew. Once you had a hard hat on, nobody, you could walk in and out of that building all day. Big generator welder. Yeah. I still got it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we drove down there in a truck, hooked up the, hooked up the welder to the truck, drove the truck home, put it in Ronnie's barn, <laughs> and then Ronnie let us take eight hours pay. Yeah. <laughs> always, always a fair and equal opportunity ployer. Yes. And the guy later called you, right? I think he said, so. Like, he said something like, I think we're even or whatever. Like, yeah. he put it together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And Giannis. Morning. Another dog, man. Yanni, if you're so insistent on the intros, I feel like you'd be like a little more, you know, like I'm like, and Giannis, and you just sit there anyway. But, but that's all it takes is for you to say who's here, my name. Hmm. I mean, I don't, and I feel like I'm a regular enough guest that people like know roughly who I am, what I'm doing here. Ronnie maybe would, des- would you know, be- deserve a little bit more introduction this morning. You want me to throw some more on there? Ronnie's the host of the Hunting Dog Podcast, the first hunting dog podcast ever. And ever. he's been on the Meat Eater Show a couple times. A couple times. Four, been on this podcast a bunch of times. Four times I've been on your show. And, and pioneered, pioneered having a hunting dog podcast podcast. I did. I did. I was even on the Wild Within with you. Yeah. Way back in the day. Way back. Long show business career. Yes. Phil's here. Phil, I can't see you Phil do that. Phil looks way Hello. younger than his voice. Way younger. Oh, thanks, Ron. I thought Phil That's not like... true because they did a contest where you had to draw Phil based on his voice only, and people <laughs> drew a really? young man. Did they? No one drew an old man. Oh, I would have went 40 years old easy. <laughs> yeah. A very a very scrawny-looking nerd with a lot of, <laughs> with a, a very wimpy facial hair situation, which is true. That's the true yeah. part. Yeah. Yeah. I had to shave halfway through the day yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> I'm jealous. <laughs> Oh, you know what's interesting about that, like shaving halfway through the day? Uh, my wife doesn't like my kids to put the same clothes on that they had on the day before, but I always wear my clothes multiple days in a row. And I was pointing out that, let's say the, the earth spun slower than it spins. <laughs> and it took the earth 48 hours to rotate. Would everybody go home midday and change their clothes? No, because... No, they would run... <laughs> They would run those clothes twice as long without changing them. So to wear your clothes twice, like, there's no, it'd be like noon and everybody's like, well, I got, you know, I got to run home and change because I've had these clothes on for X hours. Do you know what I'm saying? I do, but nighttime's just a natural reset point. <laughs> it just makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, this, I reset, this is the kind I take, of stuff I I'm take here them for. off. I take them all off. I throw them down on the ground next to my bed. I wake up and put them all back on again. Sometimes I wake up, put them all back on again, take them off, take a shower, put them back on again, and then come to work. Yeah. That'd be well, some long kids, ass. Kids days. are generally just more sticky and dirty in general, I think. I mean, I've been wearing this, this I haven't washed this pair of jeans in, I don't know, a couple of weeks now. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's got sticky bun residue all over it. <clears throat> yeah, but if, if your kids wore those jeans, you're right. They'd be oh, trashed. Yeah, exactly. Well, there'd be, um, I hate to say it, but there'd be some kind of poop on them. It's, How old are your kids? Un- until a certain age. I've, I've got a two-year-old, so that yeah, that's true. But then I've got an eight-year-old. The, the, the poop problem with the eight-year-old is pretty much gone. Yeah, they, they, wrap, they wrap it up after a while. But you know what's yeah. funny is um, another thing I was telling my kids, like, you know, they're in that phase where, like, poop stuff's funny. 
right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, people pooping their pants is funny. It's embarrassing. But, but I was like, you people are the people most inclined to have encounters with poop. Like, I think you guys would be very accepting of it. It's like a real part of your... It's just a part of life. Yeah, like a couple of years ago, it was a daily part of your life to have it on you. But now you act like it's so disgusting and funny. Mm-hmm. You're like, you're, it's a little too close for you to be dogging on. It's true. Like, wait, go 10 years without having an accident and then come tell me how funny it is. <laughs> um, Clay Newcomb. Newcomb. Hey, Newcomb. Steve. Clay, how's your new show going? Man, it's going good. I know you don't ride in elevators ever, but can you give me an elevator pitch for your show? Yeah, it's called the Bear Grease Podcast, and it's a documentary-style narrative storytelling podcast where we cover all types of stuff. So it's it's hunting, but it's also rural culture. A lot of, a lot of fun stuff, man. What was the first episode? Tell everybody. Myth of the Southern Mountain Lion. So... On that, it's it's a it's an efficient listen, as we say. It's it's always going to be under an hour, and we interviewed uh, two eyewitness sighting people that have seen mountain lions in the South. We interviewed a large carnivore biologist, so we got the real data of whether they're here or not. We interviewed a psychologist about why people see things when they really don't. And it has fun. It's a, it's a lot of fun, man. Um, Hayden, Samick. How do you pronounce your last name? Uh, Samick. I was right. Yeah, you got oh, it. Okay. You never been on the show before. I have not, man. You uh, work here though. I do. Tell people what you do. I am, fiddles. Uh, he fiddles with Phil's buttons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he uh, fiddles Phil's knobs up. <laughs> Literally, not figuratively. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I edit sound and do audio engineering stuff. Yeah, I get to do all sorts of auxiliary uh, auxiliary stuff. And, and, you, and you you tickle the ivories a little bit yourself. Oh, sure do. Yeah, yeah you bet. Uh, what's the fun fact about your last name? Oh, it means uh, it means fisherman in in Syrian. Bullshit. Yep. Really? Semak is True fish story. is fish in Arabic. Yeah. Oh, you, but you're not Syrian. I am Syrian. So I got the Syrian last name. You're Syrian? <laughs> <laughs> You're Syrian? Yeah. Are you serious? Really? Yeah. You didn't just pick that well, name because you like to fish? He, no, no one I picks their own name. I would have picked oh, some no, more Oh, no, some obvious. people do pick their names. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yep, Syrian. Walk sure. me through. Can you, can you quickly walk me through your lineage, how, how it worked, why y'all are in the America? Oh, hell. Um, I, I just know that my great-grandfather was at, at least – half Syrian. I don't know if he was full Syrian or not. No. Yeah. But it comes from my dad's side. Okay. And uh yeah. yeah it's man. A Syrian name. So yep. say it again. Samic. I mean I I'm sure I've Americanized the hell out of it at this point. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know if there's like some sort of Yeah. I have a article um that was in my dad's stuff. It's about his uncle being shot and killed by a cop. I remember the cop's name was Philip Toomey. Yeah. But um my dad's uncle, who my dad knew, um, his name was spelled completely differently than mine. Yeah. My dad said, oh, yeah, there's a split. Some of them were I on the end, and then some of them went A on the end. And you just kind of chose which <laughs> you sort of chose which version you wanted back in those days, you know? Yeah. Uh, Kryn is here, of course. Have we heard from you yet, Kryn? 
Aside from asking Hayden about his last name, nope. Yeah, you guys are tearing it up. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me glad to be doing these intros. And then Brody, I bet watch what watch the the watch how Zippy Brody will say something now. What do you want me to say? Yeah, there you go. Um, okay, now we all. If you listen to our recent uh, episode with Doctor David Meltzer, dogs domesticated twelve thousand years ago. Our first domesticated animal by a long shot. It's with genetics. It's become, um, you know, people spend a lot of time thinking about it because it's, it's re- we're able to answer longstanding questions we've had about how this came to be. But we got around to dogs way before we got around to cattle, sheep, horses, pigs. Been our buddies for a long, long time. What's funny here is how many people like didn't only recently got a dog. You really only recently got a dog, or did you have a bunch before? Oh yeah, this is. I mean, you've um, always had a dog. Yeah, yeah. Yanni, Mingus is my first as an adult dog. Phil, uh, I've I've got a dog. I never had a dog as a kid, but my hmm. wife did, and she talked me into getting one uh, after we got married. So I've had her for four years now, ish. Yeah. Okay. Point being, real experts here. Oh yeah, <laughs> top top grade. Turin's got a whopper of a dog. Oh yeah, Corinne's got a, you never had a dog before. No, I grew up in the city and my parents never allowed uh yeah, I would go bring him into pet stores, ask to hold on to a dog and then start crying and trying to manipulate them, but they never fell for it. So, so this is your first ever dog. My you first have now. my first actual dog, yep. Like a four hundred pound dog. <laughs> uh couple couple corrections real quick or one major correction and i feel like i'm right this guy was the guy that wrote in is pissed and he he deserves to be pissed we had a thing about so hard to explain now who can explain this i mean i explained it once but i got sick of explaining it even then normally when you buy a fishing license um normally when you buy a fishing license the license fee goes to those states fishing game agency so you go down and you buy a fishing license that winds up being dedicated funding for fish and wildlife management it is it's not like when you pay your taxes and they just do it you know your taxes go into a general fund and the state does whatever the whatever it does with it right it does, it's not like you can pick i'd like my taxes to go to uh infrastructure reform you know it just goes into a general fund and they do their deal fishing licenses are different because they're agency specific so you you buy a license it funds the agency and then there's mechanisms in place that make that a state's that, that de-incentivize states from robbing that general fund or i'm sorry from robbing that specific fish and game fund we had a guy write in and saying that the massachusetts never used to require a saltwater license they require a saltwater license now and he was telling us how that saltwater license fee goes to the general fund where it can be diverted into all kinds of bs and doesn't stay specific specific and Gloucester. Everybody told me I said that wrong. Another guy wrote in and said that guy is, quote, completely incorrect. Explain, Corinne. So guy number one from Gloucester. Gloucester, we'll call him Gloucester one. And then there's Gloucester two. Gloucester two says that, in fact, all the money collected from saltwater licenses go into a dedicated fund and that a third of the money collected uh, must go to improving public access. He goes on to say, it would have taken you less than one minute 
to look up and fact check this issue before broadcasting false information on your podcast. Salty. <laughs> then he says he's a frequent <laughs> listener. Uh, but he's right. He's right. I don't know why. And when I was reading it in the back of my head was like, we should probably look into this. Yeah. My Corinne bad. points out that uh, she's checked it and had someone else check it and timed those people. <laughs> And it took those people longer than a minute to check it. But not too much longer. So the guy's right. <laughs> so if he had so said he it would have taken you not much longer than a minute, he'd have been correct. Uh, the one thing, though, I called the Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries, and I'm waiting uh, for a call back because I couldn't find where they stated that one third of the uh, money must go to fishing access. Yeah. So I don't want to put that bit of unchecked information across to all of our podcast listeners just yet. When the guy, when Gloucester won, called his state Taxachusetts, which is fine. Yeah. <laughs> I should have been like, I, I detect a bias. Yeah. I detect a blind yeah. spot. Uh, friend of mine, this is, this is, this is something for you, uh, Ronnie here. His specialty is dogs, but he has a, he has a minor, his major is dogs, but he has a minor getting in trouble with the TSA. Um, a guy, a guy wrote in a friend of mine, I don't want to say his name. He, uh, he, he recently got caught by TSA. He didn't mean to be doing this, but he had an unloaded 38 pistol in his carry on. I feel his pain. Thousand bucks. Got his gun back, Ronnie. I lost mine. Yeah. Tell everybody what happened to you. This is a warning tale. Yeah. I, well, I had some. I'll try to do it not like my mom. I'll try to do a short version, but I had inadvertently taken a 22 revolver and stuck it into my dry bag, and I was going out to Utah real quick. What does that mean, inadvertently? Well, it was like I had to move it somewhere. There was a there was somebody coming in my kennel. I just didn't want a pistol laying there, so I just kind of like slam dunked it up into a shelf. Well, I actually threw it into my dry bag. Because you thought they'd see the pistol and be I, alarmed. Well, yeah. I mean, they were coming over to look at dogs, you know, and like, why is this guy got a pistol laying out on the counter? So anyway, mm. I looked at the weather report before my flight. I saw that it was going to be raining and, I, and judging in the rain sucks. So I grab all my gear. Judging and, dogs. Yeah. And I grab all my rain gear and I stick it in that bag without checking that bag. So oh, now that bag. Oh, that's how it happened. That bag has got a loaded twenty-two pistol with a six-inch barrel on it. And it's a large, it, it almost looks like a, a Colt Python. It almost, it's huge gun, even though it's a 22. And I had my first time I got that pre-check where you don't have to take your shoes off. And I was feeling all kind of smarvy. It's all slick. Oh, I was like, look at me. I got my shoes on. And, uh, and my pistol. <laughs> and I'm kind of, le- I'm leaning on that conveyor, you know, and I'm kind of judging the conveyor. Like, oh, that's pretty good rollers on this conveyor. Line's kind of building up behind me. And then the guy looking up at the screen, he turns the screen so I can see it. He goes, is this your bag? <laughs> I look up there, and I can see everything but the serial number on that gun. And I know. I'm like, I even told the guy, I said, I said, yes, and it's loaded. Because I'm like, I better just get it clear here. Come out with it now. And he says, well, we'll stay right there. And they diverted the rest of the line. You know, they had the people who didn't have to take their shoes off had to go in the other line. They They weren't happy with me. A little salty. And I was probably at that little conveyor stand there where you get your stuff back for 10 minutes while three different people came up and questioned me. Did, did they cuff you and stuff you? Right there. Right. Once, once, like the third person said, have you, have you, did you do this? Did you, blah, blah, blah. They just had this pat bunch, bunch of answers. Like if you, you know, it's like getting those COVID questions nowadays. It's like three questions they ask you. 
And she said, okay, well, we're going to take well, you like, to the- I don't know. What do you mean? What kind of questions? Like, have you had suicidal thoughts today? Oh, I got you. Did you have yeah. a, are, are you suffering from any family, blah, blah? Do you have anything against the airline? It all had the same three questions. It was a weird, I can't- Can I, I, was I, so I, I, need to, I need to interject something yeah. you make me think of. Yeah. I can't let it go unsaid. Mm-hmm. We uh, maybe took our kids down to the emergency room too often. <laughs> and one day they, um, they're like, what are the strengths and weaknesses of your marriage? I was like, oh my God, really? Is this where yes. this is at right now? <laughs> oh, oh yeah. That, I, that's the one thing that I hate. We've had to take our kids to the emergency room a couple of times. And they, they give you like a little scan. They look at both of the parents. They ask the kids very straightforward questions. Yeah. It's, you it's, wa- it's you like get, nerve-wracking. Oh, you want to get mad. Oh, you're, yeah. you're just playing into their hands. <laughs> uh-huh. You want to be like, dude, mind your own business. Yeah. But then you're like, but if I say that. Then I probably get handcuffed or something. Yeah. It's like oh. a three-year-old kid, and they're asking me. So how exactly did? So what happened? Explain to oh, me what happened. They it's a three-year-old. They, they separated. Can't do that. They separated us to tell the story. Yeah. Ugh. Awful. It's the worst feeling. It's well, they, they, they didn't separate me. They just <laughs> one one after the other came up and asked me the same three questions. And then the late there was a lady uh, police officer that worked at the Grand Rapids Airport. They have their own little office. Remember that office you talked about on the subway? Steve, that you didn't know. Oh, when I got caught with a knife? Like, but you yeah. never know there's an office there? Yeah. It was just like that at the airport. It was like the secret door. Boom. And there's this police department that I never knew existed inside the airport. Yeah. It always reminded me of that subway thing of you. So I go in the, you know, she puts handcuffs on me and I got to walk past everybody. And we go out to this little little place where the police department is. Did and they cuff you behind or in front of your back? It, behind. Yeah. Yeah. Did you start getting like weird itches you couldn't itch? No, I was just petrified. I could barely walk. (laughs) I could barely walk. And they bring me into this back room and I'm sitting down. She she uncuffs my cuffs, then handcuffs my left arm to the wall, like to a a short handcuff to the wall. Hmm. And I'm sitting in a chair just like this. And and then she got a piece of paper and I got to write a statement. I'm like, well, I'm left-handed. So, <laughs> so instead of like, I always thought like, well, you didn't think this through because all they went and got like three other officers cuffs and made like a chain of cuffs. Instead of switching hands. Instead of switching hands. Instead of like, okay, uncuff him, put his right arm on the table and let him right left. No, they went and got like three other, give me your cuffs. Give me your they cuffs. They made like a daisy chain they, of handcuffs. They, daisy chain. So now I'm writing down what happened. She's got my wallet. She asked me what I was doing and I told her I was going to do a dog I was judging some dogs out in Utah, and then she said, "What kind of dogs?" And I told her bird dogs, and her eyes lit up, and I was like, "Oh, I might, I might, I might have it here," you know. But I thought for sure, like my life was over because if I had a, fe- I assumed it was a felony, just because why wouldn't it be, right? Yeah. And turned out to be, I had a, lo- I lost my gun. It was a misdemeanor, but I did end up in jail. They had to give me over to Kent County Police. They took me to jail. I had to sit in the drunk drunk tank for three hours until the sergeant came back to post. But like the funniest part of the story would be my daughter dropped me off the airport because Kelsey worked right, right at 44th and Patterson and she dropped me off. And so two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm calling her up and she goes, yeah, dad, what's up? And I said, I need you to come get me. She goes, well, you're either in Utah or you had a connector in Atlanta. Well, what's, what's going on? I go, no, I'm at the Kent County Jail. I need you to come and get me. And she's just like, she's like, I'm like, hello? Is this Mike? Is this Mike hot? And she's, I'm like, Kelsey? She goes, I said, she goes, did you call mom? I said, don't call mom. 
don't come, just come to the Kent County Jail. I got to get back to the airport and get my stuff. So that was a, that was a bad morning. That but then a, you had a court date. I had a court date, and I never actually went in front of the judge. My lawyer went in front of the whatever the person that works with the judge. Yeah, and uh, they did all their things. I sat out in the hallway both times I went to court. I don't know what they were talking about. See, but. I think I feel like I remember part of the story you not mentioned, where you then said to your lawyer, "Like, what about the gun?" He's like, "Forget about the gun." <laughs> well, yeah. Once I realized I was getting a mis, once I realized it was a misdemeanor, I thought, "Well, any chance I can get that gun back?" That's <laughs> like, like asking a doc if you don't have to take your heart medicine. Do I have to keep taking this? Uh, and you didn't pay much money. N- not, you know, not really. But you know that story about when we had a jet boil canister in it? We, what was our initial fine? The lawyers got it I think it, it was four. And they got start. it reduced by half. Thousand. Yeah. So this guy, he he he, he paid half of what we, for a jet boil canister. Paid ha- He paid half for a pistol what you pay for a jet boil canister. Hmm. But he had an unloaded one. I don't know if that matters, though. I don't know. I don't know about severity, but my... Oh, yo, here's the other part that was funny. So I'm sitting in that room locked up against the wall, and... As I walked into that room, there's this little, I'd call it almost like a closet, and there's a shooting sand trap, like so you can discharge oh, a firearm. Is that right? right? And I they're saw, all pl- they're all ready for this uh, stuff, apparently. And I see my pistol like in this uh, like holder, right? And it's pointing into the sand. And I walk by, and I'm sitting down, locked up, and I see a cop walk in there. Now this was like, you know what a top break pistol is? The yeah. back peep sight comes up, it breaks open like a shotgun, right? And this cop is in there, and he, he pokes his head around the corner. He goes, Psst. I go, yeah. He goes, how do you open that thing? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, push up on the back rear sight. He goes back in there. About 30 seconds, he goes, thanks. Because <laughs> he didn't want to go to his sergeant and go like, I, I got a gun. And I don't know how to get the bullets out of it, though. <laughs> I, I don't know where the lever is. I got it held up. By the police in the Anchorage airport for shotgun shells. It oh, they took you away from the line and yeah, brought that you. happened to me there too. Yeah, you gave me some and I forgot to take them out of my bag. But they were they knew. Yeah, it like, happens every. They, they day were they there. were kind of like eye rolly, like you dumbass. Now we got to go through all these. We got to make paper. It's like we got to do through all this, and obviously, what you're telling us is like you went ptarmigan hunting, which is what I did, and mm-hmm. had like a bird shot, right. And then their, their attitude was more that you've just cost us a, like a bunch of right. filling papers out. We, we were going to have a cigarette break, and now we have to take care of your dumbass. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was yeah. No, there was no like serious questioning, you know. Yeah. Okay, question of legality from a listener. It was about our quid pro, quid pro quo. After Ukraine, the Ukraine scandal, it's hard to say quid pro quo because it got forever tied to the Ukraine Scandal. Anyways, or not scandal. The, the, the scandal that wasn't a scandal. Anyways, uh, we were talking about Sturgeon scandal. The, Stur- the Sturgeon scandal that occurred in, where Yanni? Wisconsin. Yes. Biologists are like taking, you know, Sturgeon row caviar is very valuable. And th- there's biologists that extract the row and there's various, just, tell, t- just crash course quick, Yanni, if you don't mind. Yeah, there was. Uh, they have check stations when when these sturgeon come in. They ha- every sturgeon that's speared needs to be checked. And there was there were some coolers that were at that check station that were specifically for eggs that were then going to processors 
And then it looks as if maybe some people that worked for the Game and Fish were then getting uh, cured, finished jars of caviar in return. And so you had this trade, you know, of goods for a, a finished product, which became illegal. At the same time, there was also some folks that we uh, did some work with, um, Vic and uh, Mary Lou, that uh, were similarly, basically cleaning up eggs for people, curing them, and then giving them back to them, but also holding on to a small portion of it for themselves. So again, sort of getting paid by, you know, holding on to it, which you, you can't do, right? Yeah, so so like, I don't think we've seen what's going to come of it yet. I haven't heard any updates about that story, but anyways, folks got in, in trouble for yeah, it. Yeah, bartering, trading, selling wild game. And, am mm-hmm. I correct in saying, though, that this is just something that went on there? It wasn't like they were trying to hide it. It was just something like that was kind of part of the culture there? Certainly mm-hmm. with Vic and Mary Lou. It, it was very, very much like I think they had been warned in the past and it was just sort of like, oh, no, we're just helping out the community, you know? Yeah, and, and this, this wasn't a black market, no, like caviar no. thing. Yeah, I remember on. when I first heard about it, I don't know why. I talked about this. I first heard about it, I was like, oh, yeah, he was selling eggs to the Russians, which gets your hackles up, you know? Yeah. So you start rolling the Russians into something. <laughs> Russian right? mafia. Yeah, and then you're like, oh, man, you know, you're picturing like guns and whatnot. But it wound up being those. The neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> By the Russians, I meant his neighbors. I don't know. Guy wrote in about this, though. Considering that you can't barter, trade, sell wild game, w- with some exceptions, which we'll not get into, uh, he lays out this little conundrum he's in. They play, his town has a tiddlywinks tournament um, and a meat raffle. Now, he says, you'll know what I'm talking about, but I don't know what either of those things are. They have a Tiddlywinks tournament and a meat raffle in his town. I can speak to meat raffle, but not Tiddlywinks tournament. <laughs> you can, Ron? Well, didn't you ever play Tiddlywinks when you were a kid? No. I use it like, um, you know, sitting around, like like if I was if I caught Phil not working. He would be Tiddlywinks. I'd be like, oh, you know, I'd be like, you spend the whole day whistling Dixie down there. Yeah. He might say you can spend the whole day down there playing Tiddlywinks. Yeah, Tiddlywinks is an actual like game with these little plastic dip um, saucers. And you push down on it, and you flip the, you flip them up, and you make them move around the board. Tiddlywinks. Yeah, somebody Google that. Don't we have a Jamie here? Steve's got a blank expression. No, I, I accept <laughs> that it's, it's, it's a, a game. Real, it's a real no, game. I, I know it's a game. I just don't know what it is, and I don't know how a town gets together to have a Tiddlywinks tournament That's and meat me. raffle. Yeah. Okay. But I, COVID, this winds up being a COVID story. Okay. COVID causes a cancellation of the town-wide Tiddlywinks tournament meat raffle. But him and some close friends decided to get together anyway and have a private Tiddlywinks tournament and a private meat raffle. (laughs) (laughs) Tiddlywinks sounds worse every time you say it. (laughs) So normally in one of these meat raffles, so normally everybody from the apparently everyone from the town, (laughs) I'm going to get one of these going. (laughs) Everyone from the town goes to the butcher shop. They all buy meat. You bring the meat. It's a great idea. You bring the meat bag and put it on a table, and then you sell raffle tickets. Draw raffle tickets. Brody's number comes up. Like I say, oh, I pulled the hat out. Uh, number one. Brody's like, by God, I'm number one. So then Brody goes up, and he'll be like, damn, I'm taking the pork loin. That's a meat raffle. Okay? Gotcha. 
But since they had to do the small scale version and all of his buddies hunting fish, they all brought game. Dun, dun, dun. Wild game. And then had a sturgeon and then had a thing. So he brought down two pounds of smoked sturgeon and walked out with two pounds of venison loin. Should he anticipate being arrested? <laughs> That's a great question. I, ho- I hope we don't. I hope our emails don't get subpoenaed so they can find out who he is. Did Tiddlywinks? I'm reading the. Uh, <laughs> I'm reading the Wikipedia page on it right now. You wouldn't believe it. The small discs are called winks. Uh, there's What's... a pot which is the target, and a collection of squidgers, which are also discs. <laughs> to shoot a wink into flight by flicking the squidger across the top of a wink and then over its edge. It sounds like something out of Harry Potter. I was or just something. gonna say that. It sounds <laughs> like some um, stupid Harry yeah, Potter stuff. This game has been uh, was invented in 1888. They got it nailed. Yeah, and and okay, I'm just gonna finish with this. Tiddlywinks <laughs> is sometimes considered a simple-minded, minded, frivolous children's game rather say. than a strategic adult game. Wait for it. <laughs> However, oh. the modern competitive adult game of Tiddlywinks made a strong comeback at the University of Cambridge in 1955. Modern game uses far more complex rules and a consistent set of high-grade equipment. So back so. in the day, if you had a child that wasn't academic, you'd just put him in the yard with a cup and some tiddlywinks. Yeah. He would just kill some hours and you could get some laundry done. Yeah, and as long as he learns how to fold his raffle tickets, right, he would have plenty of meat from the meat raffle. He'll be fine. A <laughs> uh, guy wrote in with a poem for Kevin Murphy. Who? Someone get ready to read the poem. I'll tee it up and then someone else has to read the poem. Crane, you got to read the poem. Okay. <laughs> I read it to my kids this morning. Okay, a listener had heard our episode with uh, Kevin Murphy about trying to trail uh, cottontail rabbits out in the desert with dogs from Kentucky. Um, and how, and we heard this from Jake Gribb too, kind of our uh, one of our resident dog experts, that a dog lives at a certain climate, certain humidity, certain foliage it seems to become like accustomed to those things. And then it tracks in those things. And when you move them, like if you take a dog from a wet place and move him to a desert, it just throws him out of whack. Takes him a while. He's got to kind of relearn all of his tricks, what everything smells like and how everything goes. So this guy came up with a, he calls it an aphorism, anecdote, colloquialism, or whatever you choose to call it. Hit it, Corinne. This one's for you, Kevin Murphy. If on the morning breeze you can smell your dog's daily habit, it's a damn good day to go hunt a rabbit. I have to explain that to Ronnie. <laughs> if you can smell, no. No one likes that poem. I can't wait till we get that dial in here to tell people to, to tell what people think is good or not. I thought I'd crank. a laugh track. No, no, no. We're getting a machine. We're getting a machine where everybody in here has a dial. They turn up and down to tell how interested they are, and it lights light in the center of the table so people know when they're being boring. Cream would have, I would have cranked her. But Um, another piece of feedback that came out of our uh, rabbit conversation with Kevin Murphy is the guy wrote uh, in about this interesting practice that takes place in the Lake Okeechobee region in the sugarcane fields, and we're we're right now kind of half watching some of these videos and it's fascinating saying that uh, when they, when they burn off the fields and then also kind of like they're harvesting, but also burning off the cane fields, it's common practice for local kids to come out 
with a stick and a in a sack or like a pillowcase and to fill those pillowcases up with rabbits that they just chase after and whap with a stick just hit them like they're like you'd kill a fish yeah, and you watch this thing it's like just just it's like a tap almost and then you kids run around with handfuls of rabbits I have no idea on the legality of it. Like if they have a season method to take, I don't know. But it's uh but yeah, you can go online and find these these kids rounding these rabbits up. It's really interesting. I like the local legend stuff. What's the local legend? Well, the local legend is that the best football players develop their skills as small children chasing rabbits because there's so many pro football players, collegiate football players that are good that come out of this small region of Florida where they grow sugarcane and have this practice. And you watch them run down the rabbits. It's, pretty, it's it's athletic. Yeah, I can't. I mean, you know, I've seen plenty of rabbits running around and uh, haven't really chased them, but I can imagine I could that I would not be able to run one down. No. I'm looking at an NFL film, official NFL films 2017. Uh, looks like Travis Benjamin and Janoris Jenkins. So Giants player and... Uh, Chargers player. It looks like uh, they grew up doing this and uh, hunting sugarcane rabbits yeah, with a stick. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. And then they're in the NFL. So there you have it. If it was just one person, it could be a fluke, but it's two. Clay, tell tell everybody about this this uh, this 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 raccoon dog. So a couple of weeks ago, or at least it came out a couple of weeks ago on social media. There was a coon dog in Tennessee that got stuck 50 feet up in a tree, and firefighters had to come rescue it. Do you so, buy that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It. Uh, you can watch the video. You can search for it. But, Steve, that's pretty common. Um, there are, in, in all the hound world, there are dogs that are exceptionally good climbers that find themselves in just – advantageous situations for climbing a tree be it the tree is leaning or be it the tree is a species that has really grabby bark where they can just climb and then some dogs are just incredible climbers and so now i've never seen a dog up that high and it's so the story was in tennessee that they had to call the fire department to come get this dog out of the tree what's unclear to me is this dog must have treed a coon pretty close to the road or you know somewhere where these guys could get to it and then the video shows them lowering the dog out of the tree on some kind of pulley system (laughs) and they yeah so some a human had to go up there hook up the pulley system and then hook the dog to it and they they kind of used a it was pretty it's pretty good they, they it looked like a chest harness on the dog but it wasn't it was a rope that they tied themselves and then they lowered the dog down they didn't show that part so i don't know how they got up there to set all this up but i mean a dog climbing that high they do it all the time dogs get killed a uh, good friend of mine brent reeves he and uh his buddy carson just this last fall had a dog get killed that fell out of a tree but uh, it so it happens. Chasing a raccoon. Well, they're just treeing, you know, like they 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 don't they're not watching the raccoon go up the tree. But it's like I have a dog, one of my dogs, Steve, um, Jedi. You hunted with him. He's a tree climbing dude, man. If there's a tree that has any kind of lean to it, 
I mean, he'll go up as high as he can. And what happens is they get up there and they can't come down. Then they fall. And uh, Now, do you worry fall. about uh, yeah. breaking them of it, Clay? Do you try to break them of it or you just let them have at it? You know, I don't, I don't know. You know, people might say you can break them of it, but I, I don't really know how you would do it. I mean, they're just so pumped up when they're, they've treed this coon. They're jumping on the tree and barking. And so, yeah, it happens. Well, because in, in, in chasing lions, it presents a whole nother problem. Oh, yeah. You get up the tree, they're going to get in a skirmish. Mm-hmm. And that's how we, earlier we were talking about when dogs, hounds get killed by lions. It happens usually when a lion has not treed in like what you consider just a normal tree 20 feet up and a straight tree. It's like a blowdown or something. And it just jumps onto a, a uh, you know, a, a, the, a trunk that's only five, six feet off the ground, you know, it's being supported by the branches or whatever. And then the dogs, you know, bay it for a minute off the ground, but then the dogs quickly realize, oh, I can get on the end of that tree and run right up to that thing. And the dogs have no, nothing in their head says that that thing that I'm barking at can kill me. You know what I mean? They're, they're not thinking that. So they go right up to it and they want to get closer to it and bark at it and get them in trouble. Hmm. So yeah, when when I know that when Jake's dogs start climbing and all, and it's pretty amazing. Like not even like grabbing like a cat would climb straight up the trunk. Like these dogs will actually go onto a limb, turn, go to the next limb, and turn, go to the next really? limb. Yeah. Oh yeah, and he does not like it at all. And there's yeah, they they there's because con- there's trouble waiting up there's there. There's consequences when they do it. Giannis, does he does he think that he can train them to not climb? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And okay. the guys that I was with in Washington, uh, Bart George and his crew, uh, they do it as well. If the dogs start getting up on the uh, yeah. tree, they 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 punish them. You could train them to do. Yeah. You train them to cut the tree. <laughs> you could train a dog to do anything. So getting them to stay out of the tree with no problem. You just got to set up the situation. My comment on it is basically just like a lot of times at a tree you're not there for a long time it may take you a long time to get to the tree so the dogs are there unattended not under you know and just that desire is what push, pushing them up the tree right you know but you'd need that but, obedience set up in a yard situation in a training situation you'd have to simulate it as close as you could and correct the dog because yeah. you're right you'd never get there before the dog gets there so yeah backyard training Hey man, it's a struggle to find time to manage one's finances. It's a struggle to find time to manage my finances. You go through like a busy week and the last thing you want to do is spend time budgeting, you know, your expenses and tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions you're paying for that you don't use. But now you use Rocket Money and does all of that for me. I'll tell you, this this happens all the time in our family because like something will come out that we want to watch and they lure you in with a one-month trial and you're like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll do the one-month trial, then I'll come back and cancel, then I can watch this whole thing. And then, like, you don't. You forget about it. And then, and then a year goes by and you've been paying these guys 12 bucks all year and never watched a single thing. This finds that stuff and gets rid of it for you. Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It goes in and finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings instead. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. Stop wasting money 
on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Again, rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times, I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Yanni's dog, you were just talking about Mangus, were you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, long time ago, we had Dave Simonette from Trampled by Turtles on the show. Mm-hmm. Musician. We were talking about how we needed a theme song for Mingus. Mingus has his own theme song now by Trampled by Turtles. Short and sweet. Mingus! Mingus! Short and sweet. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Mingus by Trampled by Turtles. Clay, uh, <laughs> talk about, we're, we're going to use the, we'll use that so much, you'll all be sick of that. Uh, Clay, do your big apology and explanation about how you messed everything up about fox hunting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, so we, we talked about, uh, we talked about, I was talking about the, the painting on the ceiling in my office, and I have a painting of an English fox hunt, and 
I said that I put it up there because that scene no longer exists on the earth. And it's a... It's like the Sistine Chapel. It's, it's a painting overhead. Looking that's right. Yeah. yeah, so all the other paintings and pictures in my office are on the walls like a normal one. I put this one on the ceiling because my point was, and what I tell people when they're in my office is I say, do you see that scene? And it's this beautiful old painting of a of a what I presume to be an English fox hunt. And I say that no longer exists on the earth. And probably in the heat of the moment on the podcast the other day, I probably said that scene exists nowhere else on the face of the earth. You got him and that would that would have been a mistake. Yeah, yeah. And so so we had some really good feedback come in, some people that kind of set the record straight and also, you know, stand by my statement that that scene doesn't exist in that form. But here, Steve, here's just a quick rundown. So fox hunting became big in Europe in like the 1500s. Germany was one of the first countries in the 1930s that banned it. In 2002, Scotland banned fox hunting with hounds. And then in 2005, England and Wales banned fox hunting with hounds. And it's a pretty complex situation. A lot of it had to do with land-related issues, but it was primarily fueled by anti-hunting people just saying, we don't like people chasing foxes with dogs. So in those places, though, and I guess this is where the clarity comes, they still have simulated fox hunts with scent, which as a... As a American houndsman, I'm, I'm not counting that as a fox hunt. It's like a Civil um, War reenactment they do with dogs. Yeah, and, <laughs> and so, well, and and I and I don't want to take anything away from those people for doing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm not cutting them down for having a simulated fox hunt because these people hunt on horseback and they have big packs of dogs and they do these scent drags through the countryside. So, I mean, I think that's great. That is a far cry from what it was. And so, but here's where I learned some stuff. Okay. I had several people contact me personally in Northern Ireland and in France, real fox hunting with hounds, like chasing real fox is still legal on horseback. Um, and, and then I also had a bunch of people say, Oh, Clay, you're wrong because there's fox hunting in the United States. I wasn't talking about fox hunting in the United States. We can run all kind of stuff with hounds. I mean, it's we live. I mean, this we got some incredible rights when it comes to hound hunting in this country still to this day. And so I I know people in Northwest Arkansas that do simulated fox hunts, and it's a it's an equestrian thing. You know, I mean, they're riding horses fast. They've got hounds. They're doing scent drags, and there's probably real fox hunts going on in the U.S. But I was talking about Europe. My whole idea with you know, just this kind of guard the gate thing is that they they want to take this stuff away from us and we can look at some of these places where they have. And so my painting still is on the ceiling. So, yeah. I like it. Pugnacious to the very end, Clay Newcomb. Other people wrote in saying they were mad at me about saying that fox hunters aren't hunters. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. He's like, oh, we're out there for having a good time, loving nature, all that. Another guy wrote in. He says he he hunts at a place now and then. These fox hunters, they drag that little smell through the woods and they all come riding after it. 
He said, yup, you'll be out in the woods. He's talking about being out in his tree stand. Yup, you'll be out in the woods and have 40 hounds come through making a racket, followed by dozens of people on horseback dressed up in the red and green coats like the old English hunters wore. It's quite something when you're out hunting in the woods and that rolls through. As an avid hunter, I can tell you that the people involved in this fox hunt are so unrelated to nature and real hunting that it's insulted to call the fox hunt a hunt. Obviously, there's no real fox, but the people this sport attracts are also the last people that would ever know what to do with a real fox or any wild game for that matter. It's all just a social status affair. Then you pipe and smoke it, Brody Henderson. You know, my mom was into horses and she belonged to what was called a hunt and saddle club. They didn't do any hunting there. Just but saddling. I think it was like just some traditional kind of connection. You know, I I, I think I, I hear what that guy's saying, but I don't, I mean, these people are on our side. I mean, if they, I mean, yeah, we can say, I think it's a pretty big stereotype. I bet there's some legit folks in those bunches. Well, he points you know what out I mean? that what, what one of these, what one of these fellers points out, not that guy, but another feller points out that uh, we share enemies, right? Radical animal rights. Mm. Community, yeah, suburban sprawl, habitat, yeah, having the your the the, uh, the rules of your life dictated by people who make stereotypes about you and don't understand what it is exactly that you do, but they know you they don't want you to do it. So you're bound together by your enemies. But I'll point out, well, I don't want to do that. I was going to say, but I won't. I was going to say, but I shouldn't. I was going to point out how we were friends with the Ruskies against the Germans. Look what that got us. <laughs> but that wouldn't be appropriate. Yeah. It wouldn't even be a good metaphor. But Patton wanted to go on and get them second. <laughs> but Patton and my old man. What? They were ready to keep going east. <laughs> yeah. My old man thought we were halfway done with that war when we quit. Um, Clay, I'm with you. I think we should not generalize. You know, just off this one email that uh, all these mounted fox hunters are not real outdoors folks, because I think, like you said, there's probably quite a few that are. Yeah. I'd like to see the guy that wrote that email ride that horse. <laughs> there you go. That's interesting. <laughs> Good point, Ronnie. All right. Um, On to being better outdoors folks with our weapons. I wish I can remember... Oh, he says it right here. On episode 252 of the podcast, Steve was talking about how the most common firearm-related injury was bird hunting. Um, he And this guy agrees with him. He is a uh, shooting instructor in the United States Coast Guard counterterrorism teams and teaches advanced marksmanship. Um, he wanted to write in to say that some of the stuff that he teaches in that sort of space can be used for us as safety measures, you know, as hunters out in the field. And uh, just with some other projects we've been working on, um, you know, speaking of people getting shot or getting close to shot, this really kind of hits home right now. But there's a thing that they teach when they shoot, uh, when they go into close quarters combat, and that's basically when they have to start uh, engaging multiple targets. They teach them to move their eyes first, then the gun. That being so, one, it's for safety, right? Because that way your eyes and brain can look at the target and go, yes, that is a threat. I need to you know, get rid of it. Because you can imagine close quarters, they got a bunch of their team members in there. It can be dark. It's in a house. You got to be very careful about 
what direction you're shooting at, where you're shooting. Just like we do when we're out in the field, you know, up and bird hunting and there's whatever, 10 people on a pheasant hunt. Um, and, uh, an, another advantage of that is he's saying is that it actually makes you faster at shooting. A lot of people think that you want to look over or swing to your target with your gun. But if you do that, you'll actually pass over the target and then have to come back and correct. Whereas if you go there first with your eyes, lock on, then bring your target to, then bring your, um, pistol or rifle or shotgun, whatever to the target, you'll be faster doing it that way. You know, what's an interesting parallel there, uh, is when you take out beginner hunters who aren't accustomed to shooting scoped rifles, Mm -hmm. they have a very difficult time finding the deer, whatever, acquiring the target because they are looking through the scope trying to get oriented through the scope and then searching for the thing. Mm-hmm. Once you get the knack of it, your eye never leaves the thing. The thing being your target. Your target. The You're deer. looking at a deer on a hillside and you bring your rifle up. You don't then look for it. It's just there. Right. Like your eye is on it. And you everything is the scope is coming to your eye, which is already trained on the thing. It's hard mm-hmm. to do, but you just figure it out over time. Yeah. You don't go like, okay, I look through the scope, then I'll start staring all over the place trying to find the thing. It's seamless. Eye first. Yeah. But, you know, he relates it to like getting tunnel vision and, you know, you're getting real, like we always talk about the, the factor of lust and wanting to kill something and wanting to be successful as a hunter. And, you know, you see the pheasant flush and you're so focused on that that you don't see your buddy that's in the line of fire, right? Happens. It, it does happen. <laughs> does happen. I mean, a really good example is if you shoot up like old South, old style South Dakota blockers, flankers, and pushers. The flankers are only on the outside of the field in case a bird peels out. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, right when it starts, these birds start coming up in the middle, and they're like, "Well, there's nobody here," and they're shooting the other flanker or putting shot on them. And I've seen a guy get take it right square in the lip right here. Hmm. Flanking a field, and he says, "I'm not flanking anymore this week." <laughs> and it, I mean, it was pretty. It was, we had to get it out. We had to get the BB yeah, dig out. the pellet it, out. It, yeah, yeah. Mingus, interesting. Uh, um, okay. More about dogs. A while back, I don't know what uh, episode it was, but we were talking about blood tracking dogs and about how it's becoming a thing in more and more states. Um, and a fellow wrote in. Uh, he's, he wasn't a member. He's not a member of the United blood trackers, but he was saying that there's, uh, a lot of Facebook based groups that, uh, provide volunteer tracking services to hunters. And what was interesting is that, uh, very high success rates for, uh, for these dogs to find uh, wounded deer that you might not find later. What kind of numbers did they say? 30, 40%. In 2016-17, they went on 527 tracks, had 287 total recoveries, which makes for a success rate of 54.4%. You know what I want to know here, and it'd be really important to this, mm-hmm. is is that after like is that after you failed manually tracking? I would say typically. Typically. Well, you'd have to know that because if you're just showing up off out of the gate with a dog, that doesn't impress me at all. 
I'll bet you though, some people they're shooting one in the evening, right at dark. They may just call the dog. Like, they may they know may better. That's what I'm to saying because well, normal trailing. I mean, normal trailing is yeah, fit, you know, higher than fifty percent. So uh, if but if it if that's you've exhausted your manual tracking abilities and then you're recovering fifty four percent of what couldn't have been recovered otherwise. That's impressive. Yeah. I mean, my only exposure to this was in Idaho. They used uh, uh, a woman shot a, a bear right at dark. It was raining. Um, and they brought in a teeny little blood tracking dog. That bear had only gone 100 yards. I don't think we would have ever found it. It was buried in the brush. We couldn't see any blood. Hmm. So it was a pretty impressive, and it, it was quick. It was a couple minutes yeah. that dog found it. Hey, don't bear. get me wrong, man. I'm not down on it. I think that they should loosen whatever restrictions are in place and make it that it's just the thing. I wish that like every community had a community to help people with recovery. I'm not down on it. I'm saying if, if you could up, if after you exhausted possibilities and you brought a dog and then had a 50% of recovering, that's phenomenal. Yeah. I'd say that's more the rule. More the rule. I've interviewed three, three trackers. And they come in after they can't find it. Yeah. Gotcha. Very rare. Would they just, go in without any intel. Just say, hey, I shot, just come out with me. But which you say, you know, 50% of the time we could find it. Yeah. So it's almost always after a bad weather condition or the inability to find anything. Gotcha. When they no go, blood, then you go get The it. no blood thing always gets them. So when they get called in, it's because usually of a lack of blood. Most people see blood, they keep going. They don't, they don't look for help. And the dogs are able to now track from the, the, the deer's tarsal gland, which is a, just like our thumbprint. Like mm-hmm. the FBI is not going to mistake your thumbprint for mine. A dog, a well-trained dog is not going to, not going to mistake that tarsal gland smell. It's that deer's individual scent. He's on, I'm on that deer. I'm on, I'm on Bobby Ranella and I'm chasing him across the Zerlot farm and I'll find him. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned him because I got a nephew named Bobby Ranella. <laughs> I knew that. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh. The other thing that would affect that statistic is how many of those deer didn't die. Like, so you got, oh, they, they weren't there to be found anyway. Of, yeah. So there's some percentage of those unrecovered deer that didn't die, which I would think would be pretty high. I think a lot right. of deer survive, Bullets, you know, what people, per, you know, just flesh wounds. And so that makes it even a higher percentage of dead deer that are recovered. Mm-hmm. And actually, as they've got numbers all the way through uh, 2019, 2020. And the uh, percentages are, are every year, it seems to steadily increase. Like in, in 2020, success rate got up to 66%. Hmm. Okay. Now, Ronnie. Yeah. yeah you yeah. ready? Oh, yeah. Take it away. Where would you Putting a raccoon, <laughs> fighting coons and oh, dogs oh, and barrels oh. or whatever I said. Well, okay. <laughs> I, I listen, believe it or not, I listen to your podcast quite often. Okay. And every once in a while, I hear you tell a story and I just cringe. Because it came from you. I know where <laughs> I, I know the source, but I know for a fact that I did not say it like that. But you know, one of the reasons is when I sit with you anywhere, and this has been since the day you worked for me at 18 years of old, you like to engage and ask questions. Mm-hmm. Like I could start telling a story and you go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait. So this guy, so you remember things, and I was talking about, and Clay, Clay, you gotta jump in on this because you're the coon hunter. Um, friends of mine told me this story that if you don't want your dog chasing deer, you put the coon dog in a barrel with a bunch of deer legs <laughs> and roll it down a hill. Now, barbaric, silly, local legend, whatever it is, I started Googling this morning 
And there's a guy who uses dough urine in a, in a cup on an electric fence. And when the dogs go to smell the dog urine or the dough urine, the dog gets a, a shock from the electric fence. That's now, great. What, Clay, what have, what have you heard for old legends of breaking them from trash? They call it chasing trash. I, well, if Clay doesn't have any, I got a doozy My, for yeah, you. Yeah, I've got one. <laughs> yeah, let's hear it. Go ahead. You know, I, I don't have anything beyond that. I mean, the real world, like, houndsmen typically don't, or, or at least the brand I'm around, don't buy into that kind of stuff. It's a lot more natural. There's a lot of really pretty easy ways to break. Right, right. Break, I don't break, even know if it ever happened. Break off I just, trash. I just know guys. It, oh, it had. I've heard of that same one, okay. Ronnie, about you know dough urine and electric fence. And, yep. Well, but me, I don't have anything great. Uh, let me tell you one here. It would work to keep the dog out of barrels, though. I mean, yeah, if, if, dogs like, don't if, even worry about me chasing barrels. <laughs> yeah, never going to happen again. <laughs> I see a barrel, I go the other way. That's right. Two, okay, from the same guys, I don't want to say who they are, from way back, the same guys that you came away with the story about, you fill up a barrel full of deer legs and roll them down the hill. Right. And I, I was unsettled by this when I heard it from them back when nothing would have unsettled me. Right. But I was unsettled by this. They would also say that when they had one of their dogs kill a fawn, they said what you do is you hang the dog up in a tree by its collar and whoop it with the fawn. That is brutal. <laughs> well, and I later thought that can't be true. We had a guy say, I didn't put it on Instagram because it was too graphic. Mm-hmm. We had a guy send us in a picture. Oh. He was very upset by it. It was like a high test collar and a high test lead, like the kind houndsmen use. Like those bright orange, real heavy freaking collars. Mm-hmm. Hanging from a tree, and underneath that collar was a stack of dog bones. Oh. Oh. Telling you what. And he thought, he's a hunter. He found it, and he's like, this is insane. Yeah. No one knows what happened that night. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, no. I don't know. Bad apples. For sure. I'm, I'm, I don't know what happened that night, but I'm, I, I'm assuming it's condemnable. But I'm just saying, like, I heard that a long time ago, and and we're and, and you know we're talking about like, well, people used to do a lot of things that they shouldn't do. Right, right. Well, Brody, you said you heard that. Oh, mine wasn't. My dad used to. Uh, his. <laughs> this is for you personally, or no, 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 dog. No, his his bird dog. He was a grouse hunter back when Pennsylvania used to have grouse, and uh, that dog would occasionally chase deer. And it was nothing as bad as what we've already talked about. But he'd hang a, a piece of uh, deer hide soaked in, in dough urine on that dog's collar. I have no idea if it, like... <laughs> to, I've heard might, of that, to make it sick of it. I, yeah, yeah. I, it was just, he did it. Who knows if, it, I don't know if it worked. Right. But that was something, he still talks about doing that to, to this day. I've wow. had guys tell me about tying a skunk hide onto a dog to make the dog get sick of skunk hide smell. Or just get so used to it they don't pay any attention to it. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. You know what's funny about you telling how I tell your stories and get them a little assed yeah, up? Yeah, there's a, I, I can't tell the story because it's very, very sensitive material. I could do it if I took my time. Very sensitive material. But Ronnie had a story that happened to him. I told my brother the story about what happened to Ronnie. Mm-hmm. A couple years go by, he's drunk and he's telling Ronnie a story about <laughs> what happened to me. Right. And Ronnie's halfway through the story. He's like, wait a minute. That, that's my story. <laughs> <laughs> that always happens at the fish shack. 
Uh, where were we? <laughs> Keep going, Ron. Well, where are we at? Oh, as far as the, the scandal, the scandal, the, scandal. the NAVDA well, so, scandal. So, okay. so it's like the Ukraine scandal, there, but it's about NAVDA. There, there is in in America there are sporting dog groups, right? Okay. Individual breed groups. One is uh, Deutsch Drahtar, Deutsch Kurzhaar, which is a German short hair, German wire hair, and there's other breed clubs that they hold to the standards of the European testing system, okay. which is what NAVDA is kind of based on. Explain NAVDA real quick. Well, NAVDA is North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association. Okay. And what we're looking for is a well-rounded dog that does good work before and after the shot on land and on water. Like, and you're a judge for NAVDA. Right. Yeah. I've been judging 20 years for him. Yeah. And uh, so that's what we're looking for. But in the European test... And I, I can't speak, I actually, I did call a friend when I knew I was coming on, I did call a friend in Germany and what they used to do, at least this is my understanding. Somebody can write in and straighten it all out. And you're German. And I'm, yeah, bam, with an umlaut over the O, but we, yeah. dro- we dropped the umlaut. It's actually Bimmer. Um, anyway, so during a test, they, they may not have a, let's say what they don't have. What's a version of a raccoon in Europe? Um. Sort of they, have, they have they badgers. have badgers. Oh. They do have raccoons. Is there a European raccoon? Yeah, I know it's a European okay. badger. So the dogs, because the dogs are always not the badgers and raccoons are like right. the same thing, but no, I don't know. but they're they're egg eating, bird eating, ground eating critters that sure you want to get rid of. So because in Europe everything's on private ground, they wanted to keep the grounds as pristine as possible for the ground nesting birds and the rabbits, which are the game that they're hunting. So the dogs were always expected to dispatch any kind of vermin. Whatever's, whatever they could catch in the course of a day, that if it came across a groundhog, if it came across a badger, came across a raccoon, skunk, kill it. Kill Elimin- it. Eliminate the competition. Eliminate everything for, so the hunter can get something with his shotgun. So part of their testing format, on a test day, there's no way you could guarantee, like, you're going to run into a raccoon on a test day. They, but what they would do, there's a breed, a breed warden who also does the confirmation of the dog and make sure that this dog should be bred to that dog. It's kind of like that old school arranged marriages. Mm-hmm. They, they get very concerned with the coat on that dog versus the coat on this dog or the furnishings, they call it. <clears throat> There's a lot of... They call the dog's color its furnishings? No, it's coat. Coat. Yeah. So when it has the big beard and the big fuzzy face... Those are furnishings? That's furnishings, right? That's great, man. Yeah, Rusty mm-hmm. always thought it was the testicles. <laughs> He'd always, I can see that. He'd always, he'd always go like, hey, did, how's that dog's furnishings? I'm oh, like, yeah. It's a short hair. Like didn't, a euphemism it, for his scroll. It, it didn't have any yeah. furnish. Anyway, so so during, like right now currently, this is a friend of mine. Uh, I, I, no, I won't even say what he's decorated for. Anyway, he's, he's over in Europe right now working for us. He's decorated. Yeah. And um, so he has a German bread. furnishings? German, <laughs> <laughs> well... I don't know if he manscapes or not. I, I, I really, I don't know how far we're going to go into that. But anyway, he told me that in Germany right now, if this happens in the course of a hunt and you're with somebody as a witness, okay, they, that is still a desirable trait. So if you and I were out hunting and my dog, even a feral cat, if my dog dispatched a feral cat, I could say like, Steve, write a note to my breed warden that you're a hunter. I saw, I saw Ron's dog do it. And it would go, it would be duly noted in that dog's paperwork. Now, hmm. what they've done here, I, I can't speak for Germany, but when I started getting into the versatile dog world, 
I knew a lot of people that were in what's called the VDD GNA. That's Verin Deutsch Drahtar Group North America. And that's the group that the fellow from Alaska wrote the email from. Okay. Um, to best of my knowledge, that is still a requirement to breed. They want to make sure that your dog will dispatch game. And they call it a sharpness. Or, or hardness. Hardness. Yeah, I think it's hardness, like HD. Would, would most American upland hunters with dogs, I would think, would consider that to be an undesirable trait? Well, I've always said they wouldn't have started if they had porcupines in Germany. Yeah. Like, I really think they would not. If they had porcupines in Germany, that it's because porcupines are the, the worst thing for a dog to get into. My dogs have killed raccoons to get a scratch on the ear. Go kill a porcupine. It's you know six hundred dollars at emergency vet. You know, yeah. have them taken out. So, anyway, so that was part of the testing, to the best of my knowledge, and to the best of my knowledge, it still is. But you know, somebody can write in. The controversy came up um, in NAVDA. Nowhere in our testing do we test on fur, but you are allowed in this one part of a one part of our utility test. We take uh, typically a duck and we put like a long leash on it and it's called a drag. So the dog is over in the truck with the owner. I make a little feather pile and I drag this duck 200 yards. And a into, dead duck. A dead duck. Okay. And I drag it into the woods and kind of hide it. And then I go behind another tree or something to stay out away from the dog. I blow my whistle. They call the owner. The dog comes up. Now this isn't a dog's test of nose because a dead duck dragging in the grass. I mean, anybody, your dog at home could find that. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> we can try it tonight if you had time. Um, but what this does is it shows the dog's cooperation and obedience. Like, I, you have to go retrieve that. And in our rules, because we have a big background, we have a historic connection with Germany, uh, Bodo Winterheld that started NAVDA, you know, he came from that world. And we allow replacement if the chapter will provide a duck, but if you are a person that wants to do it with a rabbit or a squirrel or a woodchuck, you could bring your own dead, let's say cold dead roadkill or something you had in your refrigerator the night before because a lot of the members from VDD GNA are also members of NAVDA. Mm -hmm. So they're practicing. These are people that really like to test their dogs. So they come to our venue and they test their dogs and they go in their venue and test dogs. In their, in their venue, there's a lot more of these drag which is the retrieve. And there's a lot of emphasis. There's an old saying that the Europeans want a tracking dog that'll point and Americans want a pointing dog that'll track. Got it. So their emphasis in Europe has always been on recovery of game. hundred percent. Like you are not allowed to go upland hunting or duck hunting without a dog. You can in America, but not in Europe, not in Germany. And you can't big game hunt unless you have the resources of like a United Blood Trackers, which they don't have there. But they always have, like the hunting property that Ben told me about is they call it a reserve. Might be two or three farmers get together, and let's say, okay, let's let's get a leasee to come out here, and they can hunt, and they can, you know, take some of the roe deer or the red deer, whatever's on the in that area, and you know, if there's ducks, they can hunt ducks. So those hunters are kind of in charge of that piece of property, and uh, so in in Germany or in the VDD GNA testing, they do a lot more recovery. So they want, they actually will drag a dead fox and they call it a fox in a box. The dog's got to jump over like a box edge and retrieve a fox and bring a fox back, a rabbit back, a, you know. So 
that's where the that little miss up happened. We don't train for it in our test, but at one portion of our test, you are allowed to bring in your own cold fur. Got it. For that portion of the test. Nowhere else in the test can you substitute whatever the chapter would provide for you. Can you explain what you were telling me about? You mentioned the, the, in certain German systems where there's a person that you mentioned the arranged marriage thing. Yeah. The breed that, you might, that you could have a dog and bring it down and, and that dog would get stamped. Do not breed. Right. If, if the dog, if the dog failed, let's say, let's say the dog did fail its hardness test. Like this dog just can't close the deal on a skunk or a possum or whatever. They would stamp do not breed on their papers because the, you can't breed within the club without the blessing of the club. We're in America. You and I could breed your dog and my dog. No one's going to stop me. Mm-hmm. But in when you're in that club of that breed club, the breed warden, like he sits at the throne of the breeding. He'll say like, Steve's got a dog that's um, got a nice coat, maybe not a great undercoat. And Ron's got a dog that's coat would complement that. Now they have to have all the hunting skills up there through testing. See, oh, and over in that club, you also don't get to breed your dog unless it passes these tests. Where in NAVDA, you could fail your dog and still go to your neighbor and breed your German short hair to his German short hair. They could both. And sell it as a German short hair. Oh, sure. hundred yeah. percent. But they don't have to pass the test to be bred. But if it's in the European t- judging system or, or breed club system, those dogs not only have to participate in the test, they have to get a passing score. So you don't have a bunch of, you know, guys like me in high school breeding, basically. Uh, what in your mind, based on uh, your experience judging dogs, mm-hmm. if someone was going to go, uh, this is highly subjective, I understand. If someone's going to go buy a dog, they're like, I need to know what kind of dog to get. I want the most versatile dog I can find on the planet. Mm-hmm. You would say? The one that was near and dearest to my heart was a German wire-haired pointer which is the English version of Deutsche Drothar. So Deutsche is German. Drothar is wire hair. So a German wire hair. That's always been my go-to favorite dog. But that's not the kind of dog you run. No, I, I, I got tired of all the cats and all the deer and the fawns and the porcupines and the Dog fights and the... Because they're just too aggressive. They, they can be too aggressive. I shouldn't say too aggressive. Yeah, they're right. aggressive. They're aggressive. More aggressive. They're, yeah. If there's a dog that's prone to, you know, even getting a fight with another dog, it's a dog that's got that... He, he's kind of like a hypervigilant dog. It's, it's almost like, picture a bunch of guys that fight in MMA and going drinking with them. There's probably going to be a fight in the bar that night, mm-hmm. right? But if you went to the method, they tell you not. They tell you because it's all that aggression <laughs> is released into the ring. Yeah, all that. Yeah, and, and what's funny is I went to an MMA fight one time and mm-hmm. watched no fewer than three fights in the crowd, including one that sent a woman away on a stretcher. Oh, <laughs> but then meanwhile, it's supposed to be that there's no. It's all alleviated through the spectacle. No, I'm like, no. oh, you can't. It was take, like a hockey game. You can't take the hard, the hardness out of the dog. You know, so. So the dogs I run now, yeah, they are, they're kind of known for not, the Italians are not, they don't have that type of testing system. They've never had it. The dogs just have to perform in the field for Upland game. So generations, hundreds of years of that, get a dog that really doesn't care much about, you know, fur. Now it still happens. Don't, I, don't get me wrong. Bravo, uh, Bravo's killed a couple cats in his later years for some reason. I don't know why, but 
I would trust him around most domestic animals. A, bro- a, a Brocco Italiano still has that. They're just pretty. They're just not interested in fur. Uh, but the the German wire hair or Deutsch Drahtar or the German short hair or the German equivalent is the Deutsch Kurzhaar, those animals are more prone to like if you're out hunting and a feral cat scoots out of the grass, it's the last run for the cat. It's gonna be on it. Yeah. The What's problem- the worst kind of dog? Oh, there's no worst. It's really that gets down to breeding. Like if really if what what I mentioned earlier, if so there's not a kind of dog that people insist on buying and then you after all the testing experience you've had, you're just like you just you're wasting your time. I I would say I would say in every breed of dog I could find you one that would be adequate in the field. Mm-hmm. But there are breeds that haven't had the testing and and kind of lost favor with the upland hunter over the like the one that everybody talks about is the Irish setter. You know, real pretty mahogany coat, you know, just a friendly dog. Back in the day, that was the upland dog in North America for for years. And then the popularity when the German dogs came over after World War II, the hunters started going for German short hairs and German wire hairs and Weimariners. And 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 the the breeders who are still breeding the Irish Setter, they just lost popularity. And so right now to take an Irish Setter and put it in through our system it could be done, and it is done, but if you called me up and said, Ron, I want a versatile dog, and my wife wants an Irish setter, I'd say, let's get you one that you got. Pay attention here, because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever, and you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care, and sit in a room full of six, sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater. But you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, 
and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, and I'm in the navel, and I hear, Pow! I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on, on X, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them, to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Got a better chance of it. Hmm. Yeah. Brody, tell me about your dog, man. Oh, the English Springer Spaniel. He he's got big shoes to fill, man. Uh, my, I had, your old dog was good. Yeah, and that dog just required very little training. But um, I went a year after that first one died. Didn't know if I was going to get another one. Got another Springer Spaniel, and uh, man, it's just it's not his fault. It's like he's coming along. I shot a couple grouse over him, a couple pheasants, a couple ducks over him last. Last fall, and the old dog would retrieve ducks. This one will not so far. Um, How old is it, Brody? He's about 16 months now. Um, Give him time. Well, that's the problem is like I just, you know, I go hunting for other stuff and don't dedicate enough time to training him. And so hopefully he'll come along. I'm I'm not writing him off yet. What do you think of the general name of the dog? What, what's the dog's name? Dusty. No, not the name of the dog. The oh, kind of the kind oh, of dog. Oh, the well, English Springer. Okay, yeah. the English Springer is a flushing dog. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a lot of background with flushing dogs. There's three major types: the hounds that that uh, Clay has, which for tracking, mostly for big game or raccoons, and then you have the flushing dogs, which are in the retriever category. So you got Springer Spaniels, Irish Water Spaniel, Labrador Retriever, uh, Chesapeake Bay Retriever. When those dogs are used. They're retrieving specialists, which is kind of funny that doesn't pick up a duck. Usually they pick well, up everything. He's kind of a wimp. <laughs> well, then that happens. You know. <laughs> There's no fixing that, right? Yeah, no. Usually maturity fixes that sometimes. Just like, fixes wimpiness. Didn't you ever know kids that like, like my daughter Jessie, she didn't, she was real shy. And now she's on news every other Sunday, you know, doing a cooking segment. She was real shy as a kid. Just took her a while to find her voice and dogs can be the same way. Yeah. I mean, he'll, he'll pick up, he picked up grouse and, right. and pheasants. It's just right. that duck thing. Yeah. It was new. And he was like, eh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm not even supposed to. Right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, if the first thing you shot for him was a duckling out of season, he might be good duck right. dog, you know? Right. So those dogs don't point. So therefore they're not in the 
I don't judge Springer Spaniels. I'm with you. Yeah. Um, but as far as training the dog, it's all the same training. You know, the, the, you just know in the process, like Brody's job is to make sure that dog stays within shotgun range and the dog's natural range should be more cooperative. It should be more around you anyway. And with the pointing dogs, you have to work on the steadiness of the point because a, a pointing dog will find a bird. And after a while, he just, he just can't handle he, it. He just can't handle it. And he's going to, and if he gets into that bird before you get there, which could be two, 300 yards away, especially in the Dakotas or why hunt in North Dakota, you can see a dog on point 300 yards away. Well, if he can't hold his shit together, you're not getting any birds, you know. If, Break, breaks point, spooks the breaks, bird. And... Yep, exactly. So that's like our curse is working on steadiness. And in a flushing dog, it's keeping that dog within, let's say, 25, 30 yards. You don't... Yeah, ideally. And yeah. they, they you know, you want them quartering back and right, forth. Right, right. Which they, he does pretty what, good What naturally. they do nice in is you always think, why are the birds always out there where my pointing dogs found them? Well, they're also birds that you're walking by because your dogs are already 200 yards away from you. You can't smell a bird on the ground. The flushing dog kind of vacuums like everywhere you're walking. So a lot of people, it's very popular, will hunt with a flushing dog and a pointing dog. Oh, yeah. Now, the training comes into like when the, when the two lines meet. But a lot of times that pointer could just be out there on the horizon or out there in the field hunting and your flusher could be walking along a fence line with you and boom, take something right out of there. You probably roll your eyes when people tell you this because I bet you everybody tells you this, but well, you knew our dog. We had a really good dog, like a really good flushing dog growing up. Yeah. That, yeah, you that, had Duchess. That, that white lab. Yeah. She was great for rough grouse, but the only thing that made her good for rough grouse is she didn't go far away. Right. She was... So she would run in between you birds. Your... She'd flush birds without knowing she was flushing birds, but right. she'd just be like busy bodying mm-hmm. within 20, 30 yards of you no matter where you went. Right. It would inadvertently kick stuff up and then right. was very good at finding it. Yeah. So it wasn't that... Its goodness was only that it liked to smell around yeah. and didn't go away. Right. And if there was a thicket that you didn't want to go into and you waited for a minute, she'd eventually get bored and go in there and look around right. and then poof, something right. comes busting out. Yeah. And like when you like grouse hunting by our house, like if a grouse is on the ground and you just start walking by, like that grouse's job is to sit. Like he, when he flies, he's going to get taken by a hawk, right? And statistically, that's how they're going to die the most. So his job is to sit. So if you're walking through the woods with your brothers and you're talking, the grouse is like, they don't know. They don't know I'm here. But now you throw this other thing that's like, what, what, what's that erratic footstep? Why, why am I hearing footsteps over here? Why am I hearing footsteps? And then that kind of unnerves the grouse. And the grouse is like, I can handle three kids walking by me, but whatever that, you know, yeah. whatever that, which is more like a coyote or a bobcat, you know, that's, of course, they don't hunt like a dog does. But um, so that, yeah, yeah, Duchess would be a real helpful, again, with the range, though. If she did that 50 yards from you. you know, oh, you'd be mad or no. Well, would you be? <laughs> You'd be hot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If people want to hunt a flusher and a pointer, how come nobody's just breeding two of them together and coming out with the best of both worlds? <laughs> you know, you sell that for a lot of money right there. Boy, man. That's boy, a good little got, business plan. You know, I got a little English cocker spaniel right now, and I could breed that with one of my broccos and see what happens. But I'm not thinking that would work because whatever whatever instinct's going to, if the pointing instinct comes through in the dog, it's always going to point at least initially and then if you were looking for that dog to just flush and he kept the ranginess of the pointing dog well then you're back out to unshootable birds but it is real popular to hunt with a like a lab or a cocker or a springer um while you've got a a pointing dog running out you know 
Yeah, and there's a whole thing with like one the flushing dog honoring the pointer or vice. That's where the real high level training. Really? Oh yeah. Like you tell the one dog if you see him point, don't go in there and screwing it up. Right. Right. So if you would if you saw your dog pointing, you would call your your flushing dog to heal. You'd go. He'd come right back to your leg because you don't want him to blow it. You don't want him to blow it, right? But now if you get close enough, now if you're within ten yards of your dog. And you know there's something there. You get to know your dog's points. All of a sudden, the tail gets loose or the body gets loose or he might kind of look over his head and see if you're coming. That usually means the bird's gone or the bird's starting to move. But his training is like, I'm not allowed to move until my boss gets here. So what you don't want is that little flushing dog running in on a pointing dog Mm -hmm. when you don't know the situation yet. But when you get to, say, let's say 10 yards, let the little flusher go. But now the pointing dog can get mad. Because that's his bird. So you got to have, it's, it's a struggle. Are there, with these high test, well-trained dogs, do you ever see anybody that gets, that they're able to go in and hunt woodcock in real dense cover Mm -hmm. and they, whatever, then the dog's like, the pointer is, oh, I'm only going to work 30 yards. I'll still point, but I'm working close. I've seen. But then you go into open cover and the dog, you're able to communicate to the dog and then all he's, he's out 70, 80 yards looking for a pheasant out in open cover. Can, 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 is it, or is it one or the other? No, no, it, it should be both. In fact, in, in the NAVDA rules, we don't implement it as much as we used to. But what we would do, let's say if we rented uh, a 40-acre or we had a lease on a 40 or 80-acre hay field to use for the field, and if there was an adjoining woodlot, so in our old rules were take the dog now that's hunting this field, take the dog into the woodlot, and you should see the dog's range tighten up. Oh, so that, that's an expectation. That, that is an expectation. Doesn't always come, but it's an expectation. You know, and and honestly, I can't remember more than a half a dozen tests where I'm like, yeah, don't worry, we got a little piece of woods. We'll walk through the woods to get to the next field. And I will make a note, like that dog just wanted to get to the next field. Like, and if there was a grouse sitting on the side of this woodlot, we weren't gonna find it, you know. Yeah. But it it's something that we don't really set up for the test, but it is in our kind of our judge's handbook. You notice it. It's something we can do if we opt to. Yeah. Explain, uh, we, were, we were talking last night as well, and you were talking about a thing that, that, that you guys train dogs to do that is just completely, this has no, like, like residential house dog owners, mm-hmm. this is not on their radar. But, but the, what do you call it, where they get up on the block. Oh, I was talking about the, the program, I'm, my, my friend Justin and no, I. No, yeah, but yeah. We'll talk, explain right. the program, but explain like what that's called. Like it's just part of the, it's part, you guys take it as a matter of course that of course you can, a hunting dog should do this. Right. But you were talking about, I don't know why any dog owner wouldn't, wouldn't want to establish this capability and it makes sense. Yeah. Well, we refer to it as the calming touch. So when a, do- when a puppy is young, um, it, when they're real young, it's a matter of maybe putting them on your lap and fiddling with their paws and fiddling with their ears. Most puppies, you turn them on their back and they're like, you know, yeah. they, they don't want to be on their back. Sure. So you the, do the vet, No matter how nice the dog is, the vet's got to wrestle it. Right. Yeah. Right. There's those dogs. So what we would do is, let's say once you get this dog home and he's, let's say 12 weeks old and he's, you, you kind of got to wait till they show you a little teenagerness in them. You know, if they're just walking around a little dopey, I mean, there's not much resistance, but what we'd do is take this dog up onto an elevated platform, whether it's your picnic table, a tailgate. And yeah, but you have in your in your shop, you have actual a training table. Yeah, yeah, the ramp, right? And that, that's used for a whole lot of stuff. Okay, so I just happen to use the ramp and, and the table. Um, 
But for a person, let's say when you got your dog home, now yours was four months old when you got it. Yep. You don't know the history of it. Uh -huh. But it, let's say it was eight weeks from a breeder or a, a farmer had an accidental litter. If you were to take that dog, and in a show world they call stacking it, we call it a calming touch, you get it to sit up there, and you got a short leash, or you kind of hold it by the leash, you know, hold it by its collar. You take your other hand, and you run it down its back and up its tail and down its legs. You'll see a lot of dogs. You you go to grab their lower leg, and they pull their leg up, and they pull their leg up. Well, there's ways to offset that. Like if, they, they, if you're having trouble letting them, they just don't want you to touch their back left leg for some reason. You reach around, and you take their, their right back leg, and you start putting pressure on that. While you're, it's almost like you're milking a cow. Yep. You grab their right rear leg, and all of a sudden they put their left one down. And yeah, they're, like, yeah. oh, they're like, they're like basically trusting you to give them a, a physical exam because you can't, you can't ask a dog, do you get any ticks on you today? You, you can't ask a dog, do you have a toothache? Yeah. You can't ask your dog, do you have a ear, ear infection? So you want your dog to be able to, your hand should be able to literally uh, stroke the tail, stroke the legs, open the lips up, pick his ears up pick his lips up, count his teeth. While he's standing there. While he's standing there. Now, that doesn't happen in one course, but it's something that like all people would benefit when they bring home a new dog. You Do know, uh, when my brother is training llamas, like breaking and training llamas, mm -hmm. after you get to the point where you can just, you know, they're very, like they, they, they're not like a horse. They never become your friend. I'm right. sure someone will be like, oh, my llama's my best friend. Right. But I mean, generally, they're, they're not, they don't need that. They, they don't have that deep connection where they, where a lot of horses really seem to like a, appreciate a human right. presence, like right. they're just they're a little more they're a little more wild. It's really. safe to say they're yeah they're they're, yeah. they're not quite there. Yeah. Um, a thing is working to the point. It's just funny you mentioned the feet. A thing is working to the point where you can handle his feet, right? And, check and it out. takes a lot. It takes a lot to get there where you're going to approach it and touch its foot. Yeah, because and right that's now, like a sign of like okay, we've gotten somewhere now. They, I can they touch accept its foot. you. Yeah, it, and. It's really it, all it is is let the dogs just gotta you know get his composure and be like okay this is this will be over in a minute and then after a while the dog really likes it and you know what dog doesn't like to be petted whose dog comes up and says keeps petting me keeps knocking your arm up that same dog if I stuck him up on a cooler in your backyard and I want to start looking at his back legs yeah he probably get away from my back legs so even in our in our testing during a utility test or natural ability test when a dog comes out of the water we feel their coat. We count their teeth and we look at their eye set to make sure they don't have like ectropic or entropic eyelids. And we, for males, we also check for testicles to make sure they don't, are not monorchid or missing testicles, mm -hmm. both of them. And that goes into our notes. And that way, when somebody reads about a dog that they had sold to California, they're like, oh, good. That puppy came out with all its teeth, two testicles and a harsh coat. And, and we get that. On test day, like this dog, it won't let us look in its mouth. I mean, it's absolutely like a kid having a temper tantrum. You know, you could get bit actually if you if you're not careful. And that'll count against that dog. It won't count against it, but there's, if we can't get the tooth, let's say we can't get the tooth exam done, it, no matter what, the dog's just mm, ain't doing it, ain't doing it. Then we'll put a note on the car, and it'll come in the you know when the magazine scores are posted, it'll say tooth exam, um, dog too sensitive for tooth exam. Huh. Right. But that also tells you as you're buying a dog later on, like, well, that's rare. It's rare that we can't look in the dog's mouth. It It's rare. It's it's a little bit of a rodeo while you're doing it sometimes. But I can always tell the people who did this calming touch to their dog, because dogs just stand there like, mm, 
<laughs> you know, just like a dentist. It's like, it's like, let, what's, I mean, I haven't been to the dentist with a kid in a long time, but what was your, like your kid's first dentist appointment? Oh, they're, they're a little freaked out. My littlest one. Right. He had to go home with no toy. <laughs> and come back a couple days later. But the only thing that happened is brother and sister got the toys and it burned him up so bad. A couple days later, he got all psyched up, went back in there and got right. taken care of. But picture if you'd have took but him. But he had had stitches a few times, so. He didn't like. He, the minute he got in there, he's like, no, uh-uh. I bet you it even smells like antiseptic. Yeah, like, he's just like, ah, I know what goes on in here. Yeah. They're going to so, start sewing something on my head. <laughs> right. But picture if you had a kid and you prepared this kid from a baby like, no, 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 stop. Once they understand, like, no, mom and dad are just going to look to see if that little yeah, tooth yeah, is I coming. Got you. If you did that over and over again, and then you put him in a dentist chair, he'd be like, hey. yeah. Hey, my mom does that. Yeah. It's, and it's such a simple thing to do with a dog. Should you be, would they, should it be that, um, like in your mind, if it's properly trained, should it be that you could, that it could have, it could be limping because it's got a cactus thorn in its paw. Mm-hmm. It should stand out there and let you pull that cactus oh, thorn 100%. Out. Really? Yeah. And you one, don't got to like have your buddy like restrain it and tape its jaw it, shut. It, hap- it happens a lot. Yeah. Remember I sent you the picture of that wooden doll that you strap in the dog's mouth to get porcupine quills yeah, out? Yeah, yeah. I've taken porcupine quills out of Bravo's mouth. He mouthed one. He didn't kill it. And I just said, sit. And I just grabbed his big old lips and I got my Leatherman out and started pulling. He's just like, okay. No big deal. Really? Yeah. Yeah. But other dogs, you get bit. Oh, that, that and my brother's dog, and they had to, it was like a group effort <laughs> getting those quills out of that right. dog, man. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't trim my, my, how about like nail trimming? Like, Corinne, can you trim your dog's nails or do you bring it to a place? I do. I do everything on my own. And how, how's your dog do with it? Great. I mean, that, that's what I was going to ask you is the takeaway for, you know, the, everybody. The one, yeah, yeah, exactly. For everyone. The one thing, because I, um, you know, I got a Newfoundland. This is like moved to Montana. Always wanted a dog, so I just like went for the biggest friggin' dog. He now weighs exactly <laughs> <laughs> exactly as much as I do. Yeah. Um. But the one thing, you know, I was like getting obsessed with reading training books mm-hmm. and watching videos online. The one thing that seemed to make the most sense to me, which wasn't exactly a training technique, but mm-hmm. seems to be training, is to touch that animal everywhere all the time yep so i would stick my fingers in his mouth yep. i would you know touch his ears everything right. you can and literally it's... take his ears and put a bow in it if you wanted oh, to yeah it, yeah i mean just, i give yeah. him hairstyles and yeah. i, I yeah. actually have tied his ears together to make it like a little ponytail <laughs> yeah. um it's terrible but when um, it comes to clipping nails now I, people yeah. have to go pay you know a groomer to, dog, to trim their dog's nails because the dog just freaks out because you're trimming its nails and it, it's just my, like, my, my dog has to be put under. That's how bad it is. Oh, no. Oh, Phil, come no. on. We took her somewhere. They, ha- they had her muzzled and strapped, and they still couldn't do it. So they actually oh. gave her a, a, we, a sedative. The hell kind yes. of dog you got? We, she was a stray on the Fort Peck reservation. We don't know what her life was like before we adopted her. And so, oh. but like, you can't go near her paws. Nothing. She's hmm. terrified. Uh. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and you, you know what's the saddest thing that happened to me? One of the saddest things that ever happened to me is uh, I used when, to hang when out. When you left TLI? That was sad. Remember, remember uh, in Miles City, we used to hang out with that old guy, Wes Munsell? Yeah. He was in his 90s, and his wife passed away. And me and him were out messing around, driving to try to find some mushrooms one time. And he was uh, he was 87 at the time. Or, or maybe he just turned, he was, I think he was 87. And we get we, we stayed out longer, and we were planning on staying out. And, he, and uh, he wanted me to drive him and drop him off at the doctor. Okay. So now I was kind of worried, like, oh, what's going on? Why is he going to the doctor, you know? So I drop him off and he goes in there for a while and I just mess around, wait for him to come out. 
and we're driving home. And I was like, Wes, what's going on at the doctor there? And he goes, I had to get my toenails cut because my wife had always cut my toenails. I can't reach down there. <laughs> so you had to make an appointment at the doctor. I said, I'll cut your damn, you know, he never had me do it. But I was like, I'll cut your toenails. I don't care. Yeah. Going to the doctor to cut your toenails. Yeah. Just being alone and old, man. Yeah. It's kind of not the he same. He had a loving family and everything, but it just made me sad. Yeah. Yeah. Does it make you sad hearing about it, that? It, it, it kind of creeps me out a little bit, actually. Because <laughs> now you're thinking, I'm thinking like, you know, that book I was trying to write, Real Men Don't Wear Short Socks or Crocs and Real Men Don't, you know, go to get a pedicure. Now I know guys that actually go get pedicures. Oh, it's on. not that. He wasn't going to get a pedicure. He's going to a doctor to have his toenails cut. Well, you know, he could have went to a pedicure place. I mean, he's probably not, he probably doesn't want to be that kind of guy. Or he just, <laughs> let's go back, let's get back yeah, to dogs. Yeah, yeah. I'll just feel sad about my friend yeah. by myself. Okay. Um, tell everybody about the Upland Institute project. Okay. Um, which we kind of been talking about without talking about it. Right, right. So I have a very good friend that's a really well known dog trainer in West Michigan. I've uh, known him off and on since he was really young, and uh, he's been training dogs for 30 years. Him and I kind of reconnected when he moved close to me. And with me being a judge and seeing all the different things that are training related issues during a test, like our upper level tests are a lot of obedience. Our puppy test is a lot of just natural, natural ability. Which what do you, what do you roll under obedience? Steadiness, uh, retrieving, healing, waiting, you know, waiting when we go do shots away from the dog, everything in that test, there's a there's obedience portions of it. Like come when called falls into that's sure. That's sure. Primary it, obedience. Right. Stay. Whoa. You okay. Know. Um, so we're always sitting there kicking things back and forth about like, Oh, I saw. And he says, well, yeah, that's probably because the person didn't do this before they did that. And then I think back on my testing career, which I don't test my dogs very often, but as a requirement, you are required as a judge to test your dog every so often because they want to put you on that side of the fence. Mm-hmm. So you don't, you're just not a judge your whole life. You got to go there and go like, me and my dog are here. Yeah. <laughs> guys, now guys, remember, I might be watching you next year, you know. Oh, to- I imagine that's humbling <laughs> as hell, man. Oh, you should have seen me in my last test. I, I was actually told that I was no longer a judge last January or no, two Januaries ago. I said, what do you mean? They go, well, you went over your grace year. I'm like, no, I didn't. And like, yeah, we keep pretty good records. And I had to get a test lined up and I did. And it was Bravo, that big dog I have with the long tail, that big Bra- that big Bracco. And we're we're not acing the test, but as a judge, I'm like, yeah, we're 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 okay. Oh, I would we're, be so unnerved in that gonna, environment, man. We're not going to get all fours today. We have a zero to four, but I said yeah, I got twos and threes in the right spot. We're okay. Last part of the test, last part of the test is the easiest part. They launch a duck with a launcher, like a big giant slingshot. They launch this duck across a, a duck, pump, a duck. A, a expired duck. They a la- dead duck out of a launcher. Out of a giant slingshot. Huh. It's like it's like a four-foot slingshot. So someone just saves a duck from whatever. Yeah, we save it from other things, or we buy ducks like that. But anyway, every dog loves this. The do- you know, the bird's up in the sky. You shoot the blank gun in the air to simulate the shot, which is another part of obedience. He's not allowed to leave until the duck hits the water. Got it. Um, and, and then you send the dog. And I'm like, oh, we're going to pass. I'm going to be a judge again. And Bravo just stood there on the bank and looked at that duck. And I'm like, fetch it up. Fetch. I said, fetch it up. He's not budging. He's not putting his toe in the water. And I'm like, this dog loves fetching out of the water. I take this dog goose and duck hunting, right? And he's like, eh, ain't doing it. And I'm like, what am I going to do? So 
the, you know, the judges there and they all know me cause you know, you make friends over the years and, yeah, and you've judged I, their dogs harshly. And, and, <laughs> and I also know that to pass this portion, that dog has got to get that duck out of that water. All my pleading is going to bring my score down. But if I can get that duck to shore, I'll get a one. Well, I'm pleading brings your score down. <laughs> sure it does. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. You can bring it way down if you keep pleading. So you just whisper plead? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm like, I'm literally like, I'm acting like I'm doing this on purpose. I'm stroking his back. I'm like, good boy, fetch, fetch. <laughs> I'm, 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 they're hearing good boy, good boy. And I'm going, fetch, fetch. <laughs> and he's just like, nope, nope. And they're like, they're like what, what do you want to do? So I have an, op- you have an option. You have an option to take a rock. Okay. Now I already know my score is down there, but if that duck comes back to shore by his job, you get a C minus. I'm going to, yeah, just like I did in school. I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have low numbers. In They'll his, let you advance to the next gonna, grade. They're going to let me graduate high school, even if I got the D minus. Okay, it was just you know it was algebra, and finally, I don't know if it was the rock or what it was, but finally. I was just like, at that point, I'm going, really? You Now the judge is like, Ron, quit acting so silly. I'm like, I'm looking at Bravo in the face like, really? You don't want me to be a judge again? You you can't go out there and get that damn duck for me? And they're like, all right, Ron, okay, well, calm down a little bit. I think I threw, I can't remember if I threw a rocker. Finally, he just went into the pond and swam out, got the duck, gave it to me like nothing. He just, I don't know if he was messing with me. No, I don't know what he's doing. Uh, but yeah, it was. He watched you. Uh demean all those other dogs and he's like you know what buddy and he hears i've me. seen you ruin enough dogs right. days where i'm gonna ruin your I, I hear you all the time with your friends talking about it watch <laughs> watch how i can make you nervous i really thought i'm like oh my god we are failing today but anyway upland so, institute project yeah. so uh justin mcgrail and myself we started kicking around the idea of like what if i got a camera and kind of followed your process through a whole bunch of dogs mm-hmm and it took us 15 months to film it. We filmed it in four states hmm. because, because Justin is a guy that um, he doesn't train dogs for testing. You know, he, he can do parts of it, but that's not it. He's, he's training dogs for a hunter wants to go wild bird hunting with your dog. So he literally takes strings of dogs to Kansas, runs them, Montana before the season opens in August. Same thing. Him and I went to North Dakota and filmed in August. And all that was reinforcing that yard training and that field training we did in Michigan. And we, we have real nice shots of like, say a bunch of sharp tails getting up and the dog just standing in the middle of these sharp tails, just, Oh boy, you know, and he'll take a blank gun at that point and then he'll shoot the blank gun and the dog stands through it. So that's the kind of style of training and his, but, but, but it's instructional. It, oh, it's very yeah. instructional. It, in fact, it's, it's not like, look what a dog can do with the right training. It's like, how, no, here's how you do it. No, and, and we show examples like day one, like here's a dog the first time on a wool post. Okay. It, it's almost like the first time you try to train your dog, trim your dog's nails. He's jerking. He gets on this wool post, which is a, a solid stake, like a horseshoe stake and a little cable. First time he hits the end of it, boy, he's bucking like a horse and he's he doesn't understand why. And you eventually, when he does the, when he does give you what you want, which is him to just stand there, then you start overlaying a name to it, which in that case would be woe. It, it goes back like heel too. You don't, you don't start a dog, you don't teach a dog to heal with the word heel. You teach a dog to heal with motion and a leash. Once you see the compliance, then you give the command a name. 
And I, I watched him. He would come on my podcast about every six months. So I'd get listener questions. And the way he breaks down a question, it's like always like number one downloaded episodes. They just love the way he, and it's hard to, you know, look at someone's dog from an email because you're not, you're only getting what he says. My dog doesn't pick up the bird. Sometimes it does. So, and he's, you know, he just breaks it down. And so we decided, um, you know, I, I felt I was kind of confident from doing shows with you to watch what the camera guy does. So mm -hmm. I had, I put myself in the job of the cameraman and followed him along for 15 months. And I would, and we were really lucky that COVID hit. So that shut my company down and I could go over to his kennel. I could go to Kansas, North Dakota. I had the whole year to do, hell you want. to do whatever the heck I wanted to. Yeah. And, uh, and we were putting it together. It's, it's an editing, it's an audio right now. And it's, it's coming out. Well, hopefully by the time this airs, it should be out and it's called the uplandinstitute.com or that's a website. And what, how's it going to function? Like if someone wants the material, what do they do to get the material? They would, they would purchase the material. They there's right now on the website, there's a, a trailer commercial that talks about it. And then there's in the beginning, we got three, three classes we're offering. The one is called foundation and fundamentals. And that's the one you were kind of talking about that you could do that with a lot of dogs. And that's what you're saying. Any dog, any, any hunt do dog, any, house dog, any, whatever. Any dog would benefit because it's all that early stuff, that exposure, putting the foundation blocks underneath it. Yeah. It'll go a little bit further into introduction to birds and introduction to gunfire. But, you know, in the beginning, like crate training, tie out stake, calming touch, come when called, early exploratory walks. Those are things that every dog should do with their owner. And people kind of get in this habit of like, they treat that puppy like a little kid instead of like a, a dog. And they, they tend not to expose it to enough stuff. And then all of a sudden the dog's six months old and goes to a dog park and the dog's... You know, he's in the corner, you know, without the confidence. So um, foundation and fundamentals is like the core class. And then, uh, Brody, you might know this a little bit. Yanni doesn't do it, and I'm sure Clay doesn't do it in the hound world. But in the retrieving world, it's a thing called the trained retrieve. If your dog is a sloppy retriever or doesn't pick up game or picks it up and drops it 15 feet from you, um, there's a process to go through to clean up that retrieving called the trained retrieve. And that's got 16 different parts to it, you know, but so that, that's a separate class. A person could buy that class. Got it. Um, if they just like, Hey, I, I don't care if my dog's steady and he's a pretty good dog. He lets me clip, clip his nails and he's already crate trained, but I wouldn't mind some better retrieving out of him. So you could do that class. And then what piggybacks onto foundations and fundamentals is advanced bird work. That's where you would see a dog that not only would hold point, but learn to relocate on birds learn to hunt with another dog and back and honor another dog. Yep. It's, like, it's like in a pointing dog world, if a dog's on point and another dog sees it, ideally that dog is going to point the dog that's pointing the bird. He's like, oh, he's at work. I can't sneak up on him. Let him get his work done. My dogs don't do that. I mean, if I can get it ready for a test, I could do it, but I don't, I don't hunt him that way. Yep. You know, I just try to get good, try to be a better wing shooter than I am dog trainer, to be honest with you. You you mentioned Yanni's dog. I think the interesting thing about um, what Mingus is supposed to do or what Clay's coonhounds are supposed to do yeah. is a bird dog is supposed to, he's kind of got to know all these things, right? Yeah. Like just a lot of commands and stuff. Right. But like uh, the hound dogs, they're kind of, it's like they either, it's like, no man, you got, 
not that, not that it's one thing, right, right. but all this stuff about sitting, healing, rolling over, that, shaking hands and all that is like not yeah. part of the conversation. Right, you right. Know? It's like, did, did you do anything like that, Yanni, with him? Or were you just trying to get him on a raccoon early on? Yeah, no, we still, I mean, I want him to be a good uh, family so, dog first and a right. good companion. So I try to be real harsh on him with like when we're running together. Come when I call. Yeah, come yep. when he calls. We did a lot of work on the, uh, what's the long rope called? Lead rope. In fancy terms. Yeah, yeah lead rope. Well, so you, yeah. you do do some of that house dog stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. I guess because it is your house dog. So. Yeah, exactly. Clay, you must have, because I used to watch, you did some of your YouTubes, and one of your dogs is always on your, you know, behind you during your podcasts and during your YouTube stuff. Did you uh, do a lot of obedience with your hounds? Very informal obedience training. That. That particular dog, and, and a lot of these dogs I'm hunting are just naturally pretty obedient. And, and you know, so informal training. Right. Just by them being around me so much, you know. So th- what that is, is like dogs get certain things inherited, and that's called cooperation with a dog on our scorecard. Yeah. And so a cooperative dog isn't a real challenge to live with if they're a cooperative dog. And then a little bit of over- overlaying sit when stay or mm-hmm. wait till I give you a food bowl. but there's a lot of dogs that have a super high desire, like their desires at a 10 and their cooperations at a two. And so they're, they're like, I hate to, I always analogize kids to it. They're like that kid that can't sit down in class, always getting yelled at, always getting put in the hall. The teacher's like, oh, we got to put him on Ridlin. Yeah. You know, that's kind of like, there's bird dogs and hounds, I'm sure, that are much like that. They're almost like a, it's like a three ring circus getting them in and out of the truck. And yeah. where I would venture to say that you could tell your hound dogs to sit, open one door and load one up if you co- cared to do it. But I've never really spent any time with a lot of houndsmen, a little bit. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of variance in the hounds. Some of them are not, and, and I've heard the term used biddable, Same trainable. Thing. Yeah. Yep. They're, they're, there's some strains of hounds that are just, they're just not interested in that. They're just not that good. Not to say it couldn't be done, but primary, it's, primarily it's an issue of function. We just don't use them that way, so we don't need them trained right. that way. But I think even if you could train them that way, it did, they would never be, most of them would never be as good as maybe some of the bird dogs that have been bred for so long right. to be cooperative. Right, right. You know? I, I got a dog question for you yeah then uh we'll open up everybody else got specific dog questions but first off what's you guys where do people go find the well you just you know type in upland institute and what's the web they'll find the website if they yeah, do that yeah www.uplandinstitute.com oh, okay that's the name of it yeah and it's available when people are listening to this it's available it should like be it's, available it's about if, polished up if if for any reason it's not available you know you can just put a Email, there's an email sign up yep. page and notify me when it is. But and it's like an a la carte transaction. You pick the things you want and download it. Right. You 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 pick the courses you want and you download it and it's yours for life. Got it. Ron, I'd like to commend you. Uh only what, four episodes being on the show and you picked up all that knowledge as a photographer. It's well shot. <laughs> Like um, it's, it's pretty. I'm like I'm I'm impressed. I just thought he was drinking beer and fondling the shotgun yeah, the whole time. But no, no. Yeah, he was taking well, notes. There, there, I, I I did take notes, and I was always shocked with your your videographers in the field, and and I remember you told me too. Editing's got a big thing to do with it. It's it's all got a big thing. That's not to demean. I mean, it's all got a big right. thing to do with you it. You got to still be good with the camera. But when we started, like day one, when we started doing this, I went out and bought a GoPro. Mm-hmm. And like called up my son-in-law who 
he's a, uh, an editor for a, another hunting company. And, uh, he said, what'd you get a GoPro for? I said, well, I wouldn't, he goes, no, you need a movie camera. And I called up, I think it was Rick or Garrett. One of them was real good. He got back with me and he, he told me the brand of camera that we shot in Montana. He said, that's, you'll be able to figure out how to use it. It doesn't have too many features, but it'll, it'll be everything you need. So then I went out and spent a bunch of money on a camera. Hmm. And then I was like, well, we got to do this now, Yeah, <laughs> you know, cause this I'm invested. I'm invested. Right. And, uh, just, it just, uh, yeah. So there, there was a secret to a lot of it. It's called the tripod, which you guys, we never carry tripods for the camera guys out there. But, um, when, whenever I could set something up because we kind of know what's going to happen. Yeah. But what you're doing is instructional. So it's different. Right. Right. So yeah, we'll shoot off sticks. Like, uh, they'll shoot off sticks now and then on food stuff, but generally we like that kind of like, um, moving around uh, like like oh, like it's like you're with the, a buddy you know what i mean are. Yeah, yeah like it feels yeah. more human to human yeah you know it has more of a like a present quality to yeah. it when yeah. it's freehand yeah they don't call it freehand though what the hell do they call it yeah freehand sure but i appreciate can that, i ask you my dog oh yeah. go ahead no i mean uh and yanni like, never he doesn't compliment many people about anything well that, i i do appreciate that and i also found out that <laughs> I, d- I also found out that editors. <laughs> well, I'm just I'm saying right. he doesn't throw them around. Right. Now, I sh- let me put it differently. Yanni doesn't run around giving compliments where they're not due. All right. Well, then I, okay. I yes, it is. So if you get one, you're doing good. Visually, it's very pleasant to watch. It's well edited. He doesn't blow a bunch of smoke. No. Can I add this in now? Um, I was told recently that I'm stingy with my likes on the Instagram. That people notice that. (laughs) Can anybody corroborate that here? Listen, I like it because you don't run around just shining everybody up all the time. And when there's a compliment, you can pay pay attention to the compliment. It's an earned compliment. I feel good when Giannis hits a like button on mine. Steve never never does anymore. Oh, come on, dude. You don't know what I do. Oh, oh, let me get my other shit. I'm not that funny. I'm not that fond of the platform. So, Go ahead. I, I should have said this. So we we are going to start an Instagram account for that, but that's not something I'm counting on. I'm advertising this in magazines and partners of mine and from the podcast. So all this information will keep coming up on my Instagram account, which is the Hunting Dog Podcast. Don't go to my name. Go to the Hunting Dog Podcast. Because that's Instagram. your IG handle. That yeah, the hunting no dog. underscores and no, slashes. The no. Hunting Dog Podcast. The Hunting Dog Podcast on Instagram, and we'll put up notifications and clips and stuff like that. So you can also get information from that. Glad you said Instagram. <laughs> uh, here's my dog question. Yeah. I kind of know the answer to it, but I just I'd like to hear you say about it. Mm-hmm. Um, our little dog will heal for me. Okay. And it'll heal on command. Off leash or on a leash? Either. That's impressive. It does it farther away off leash. Sure. Because no, I, don't, I don't have the ability to get mm-hmm. its attention. Right. But it'll like, it kind of knows what I'm talking about. Right. On leash, dead nuts. But it won't do the command for other people. Right. But in like sophisticated dog training, I'm guessing that you, like, do, do you guys, um, do you guys view it that a dog should be that any handler should be able to come in and get it out of the dog, or is it handler specific? I I would say if somebody had a dog that was really well rounded, I could probably take him to a test and pass him, and healing is in the test, so he would probably acquiesce to saying, "Okay, he's my owner today." But I, most dogs would act differently without their owner. But they, I, I get it with the differently, but but yeah. 
a, a pro, like a, a properly trained horse. Yeah. It's almost like horse people are probably going to, yeah. I should have ruined this by my sister-in-law. Right. My understanding of a properly trained horse is that riders can be interchangeable. Yeah. There, there's a style of riding. A rider should get right. on that horse and it should, it shouldn't need to figure out, you know, it's like, this means that, this means that. Right. And the basics are. Right. The squeeze the legs mean this, the range yeah, mean like, that. Yeah, like these yeah. basic commands that if you're a rider and you ride a yeah. certain style and a horse is right, you should be able to be functional with yeah. the horse. You, but I always see dogs that they're just not going to listen to most people and then there's a person they'll listen to. Right. And I think that just comes from them being a pack animal. Like somehow you've established yourself as the alpha and the dog kind of understands that. And like, well, when Steve tells me it, he means it. And if the kids try to do it, you know. I bet you you probably work more with the dog than the kids do. Is that true? Well, when I when it doesn't do what I say on that leash, it doesn't go unnoticed. <laughs> right. By the time, <laughs> you know, I'm like. <laughs> right. And that's how you snap. You, if you I give it, it a little. No, you know, I mean, I don't need to do anything. No, I just need to like. Yeah, just tug. Give it a little jiggle. Yeah. And she's like, like, oh, yeah, I'm good. I don't think she likes it. Yeah. I think when I got her on a leash, she's like, ah, damn it, this guy? Right. Probably is like that. Dog, dog given, given themselves, they'd just be like a horse. So given a, if a horse had his choice, he'd be out in the pasture, he wouldn't be rode. <laughs> Come on, think about it. You yeah, know no, I mean? it's, it's, they're, they're like, really? I got to carry your dumb ass around all day? You yeah. know? And a dog is the same way. Like, if you did do nothing with a dog, the cooperative ones are going to be able to be lived with, and the wild ones are going to drive you crazy. Uh-huh. They're just always going to be into something because there's no structure. It goes right back to kids. No structure, no foundation. You're dealing with problems down the road later on. Yeah. Uh, I had a guy say something interesting to me the other day about kids, and we were talking about having rough dads. He was saying that, you know, after spending his career in public education as an administrator and then having, you know, his own family as well, mm-hmm. he said, I used to be worried about being too hard on my kids. But after the things I've seen in my career, I realize that the people that are too hard on their kids have it just about right. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of, that, that goes with dogs. Yeah. You got to be, there's a, there's a point of, no, you have to, I'm the boss yeah. and you're, and you're not. Yeah. I remember, um, yeah, you probably don't even remember this, but I remember you, uh, uh, in talking about, cause you had kids before I had yeah. kids, you know, you're yep. a tad older than I am and, uh. Two tads. <laughs> yeah. And just your thing about, um, I'm not here to be your friend. <laughs> right. Oh, you we'll know. do that later. But <laughs> yeah. right now, this isn't about us being friends. <laughs> right. Oh, it dry. When I would, you know, I would go on those rants and raves. It's like when somebody's like, oh, I want my kid to be my, their best friend. Like, well, then your kid doesn't have one. Because <laughs> if you're your kid's best friend, man, he's a lonely kid. He, your best friend should be in a pup tent when they're 12 years old, sleeping in the backyard. Shouldn't be you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. My kids are my friends now. Yeah. Yeah. Probably because they weren't back then. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, man, he finally likes me. <laughs> I mean, I didn't even go to sports games, you know? It's like, I didn't join, I didn't join tennis. <laughs> Why would I go to a tennis game? Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in tennis. No. My dad, I wanted to join baseball when I was a kid. My dad says, you, you're terrible. You, you can't catch or anything. And I'm like, yeah, but my best buddy, Rusty, he's in Little League and I want to go in Little League. And he goes, all right. All right, fine. We're gonna get you, but you're going to every game and every practice. He never showed up to one. Yeah, it was my job to get on my bike and go there, and it was I was miserable. Yeah. I kind of learned a lot. Um, you probably don't even realize this, but I actually like picked up a, like a handful of. I didn't have a ton of exposure to you and your kids because we were working and stuff, right? Or hunting or whatever. Yeah, but I picked up a handful of like um. It's hard to explain it. Just like I I, I recognized early on like a demeanor. Mm-hmm. 
a way you spoke to your kids. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. There's like, like authority, but understanding on equal footing, but not, right. you know, it was like, it was, it was a, del- you spoke to your kids in a deliberate sort of way. Yeah. 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 You know, yeah, there was not like sweet talk. No, beep, no. Beep. It was, very, it was yeah. always very conversational right, with right. them, like kind of like leveling with them. I, I picked up on that. Yeah. You know, I, like I, I noticed it I even mean, prior to having kids that there right. was a, it, 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 it didn't seem accidental. You know, it seemed like it was a, a, a developed way to deal with kids. Yeah. I'll give, I'll give Sue most of the credit because I was working on the road, but that way of being, I, I mean, literally I'd get compliments. I could take my three girls when they were 10 or 12 years old to a dog test and I never had a, they weren't climbing on anything. They weren't starting trouble. They're just, they occupy themselves. You know, it just, it's just the way you raise them. You know? It's funny how, uh, you wind up making it your own, like. My boy, the other yeah. day, we were on a plane and and uh, he he wanted to get a water or something. I said, we'll go up and talk to that woman up there and get a water. You know, a while later she comes back. Right. You have the nicest boy, right? You know, makes my week. But how <laughs> how many parents <laughs> would have said, okay, I'll go get it for you? Yeah, yeah. So you make him. Yeah, you're go gonna up. go up there and here's what you're saying. Well, and you're gonna tell her this and yeah. get the thing. When I came to your house last night, all three kids go up. And, you haven't seen Ronnie in a long time. Go up and shake Ronnie's hand. Yeah. You know, and you know the kids are like, oh. no, but I hope by the time they're 18, they'll do it without me like. They'll, you know, not embarrassing them. They'll look pointing. people in the eye yeah. and they'll shake their hand when they interview for a job someday. Yeah. You know, that's all, that's all you can hope for. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else got a dog question? I do. Yeah. Can you teach an old dog new tricks? <laughs> Seriously, like I, in regards to like, let's say someone, I've always wondered this, like, let's say someone, there's a, there's a German short hair pointer that's a year or two old at the pound. Mm-hmm. That was never, it was just someone's house dog. Right. right? They right. got rid of it. Right. Never kept chewing up the couch and what the it, wife's yeah. Side and someone's like, man, I don't want to pay two thousand dollars for a bred puppy, right. but I'm going to get this dog from the pound and turn it into a bird dog. Like, right. can that be done? Oh yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. The the problem is if you adopt a dog, and I think Yanni could probably speak to it because he he adopted a hunting dog, and a brand new one, but yeah, no no idea what his background was. No background. So if you don't have the background, let's say on that German short hair, yeah, like an older one, it it, it might come from what's called a, a what we would refer to as a show line like so the dogs were in a show ring and really not hunted for the last that dog's parents grandparents great-grandparents they just didn't hunt much they're still going to have instincts they're still going to be okay but you could certainly get a dog from a pound and i know there's a guy who rescues dogs or his, his wife does and he whenever a like an english setter an english pointer or something shows up in the sporting dog world he takes it in and he hunts with them they can they can learn obedience, you know. Like their genetics don't expire, and they can learn their, the, the scenting and yep. the, all that. Pointing. Nothing, no genetics expire. Right, the, the nose is going to be there the whole time. The love of birds, it's like like the big. I, here's one. I again, I love analogies. My biggest problem is when people call me up, they'll ask those questions like, "Can my dog still do this?" And I never did it. Yes. And then the other one is, I got this brand new dog. When should I get it into birds? everybody wants to see their dog point a bird first, right? So my buddy says, oh, I got a, I got some quail, or there's a hunt club over here. They'll let you go after a, a test, and we'll bring your puppy out there. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. You want to see it once. But people overdo it, and I keep in, they're like, so Ron, you telling me I don't need to get my young dog in front of birds? And I always tell them, you know, did your dad leave a Playboy magazine on the counter so he, when you hit puberty, you would like it? Mm-hmm. 
No, I mean, yeah, no, I I understand the answer being no. Right, right. You don't need to expose them. The the difference between a dog and a kid is the dog gets to be a teenager by the time he's 10 months old Mm -hmm. and a teenager takes 13 years. Yeah. But again, throwing that Playboy magazine in front of them, that's not what they need. They need the shaking hands, waiting to be released. They need. Opening the door. They need the structure. The, the, the pointing instinct and the love of the game is genetically in the dog. Got it. Yeah. One last question. Yeah. What's the uh, what's the advice you'd give to any new, either new dog owner or anyone bringing home a rescued dog, a puppy? Like, what's the thing they need to get on? Uh, well, for for one, always crate training. You know, if you a lot of people try to do it without a crate. Crate training is super important for a young dog. It Define what a, that means, though. Okay, a crate would be like a portable transportation crate. Okay, you'll see them on airlines. They call them airline crates. Yeah. Um, getting a getting a puppy used to sleeping in that crate by himself, learning not to, it helps him to not develop a, a separation anxiety. Mm-hmm. Like you so, training in, meaning he's comfortable in there. He's comfortable in there. Yeah. Now his first day in there, he's going to bark and squawk and yell, and and it's just like the first time you put a baby in a crib when they're old enough to cry. If you are putting them down for a nap and they cry and you go in and get them, what do they do? Oh, I cry. Mom comes get me. So if your dog's crying in the oh, crib. Oh, we used to sit down on the couch. And just tough just it out. basically crying ourselves. Right. Oh like, my God, they got to go to sleep. This right. is so painful. It's exact <laughs> same thing with a puppy. You got to, you just got to put the music up higher and let him <laughs> cry himself to sleep. And then the next day he'll fuss a little bit more or a little bit less. And then after a while, he's like, oh, that's where I go and it's not my time to be with people. Mm-hmm. And then later on, you'll see it's real common. If you have a, a crate in the house, like if somebody comes over, you got a dog that you don't want or a baby comes over, you don't, you know, a little toddler, tell the dog to go in a crate. But you'll find like my wife's dog, you're like, where did the dog go? And you look at the crate doors open, he's in there sleeping. It becomes his little- His zone. His, yeah, it's his place. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, crate training and socialization being- Try to do as much as you can with the dog. Get the dog in front of other people. Let other people handle it if they're willing. Um, try to get your whole family, even if you got young kids, try to get them all to do a little of this hands-on stuff so that dog kind of goes a little bit down the pack line. It's like, oh, even a little toddler has to look at my mouth. Jeez, what's... <laughs> Yeah, I'll say how our yeah. dog won't look my youngest in the eye. Right. He tries to act like he doesn't exist. Right. He's like, oh, no, that's guy. He's like, yeah. And looks off in the corner. And I'll bet you somewhere <laughs> along the line, your youngest just kind of grabbed his tail or something, and he was like, that thing. He's like, I can't bite him, but I don't, I can't, they can't make me look at him either. <laughs> nope. Nope. Can't bite him, but I don't have to like him. Uh-uh. Okay, Ron Bame, Upland Institute Project Hunting Dog Podcast. Ron Bame. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Steve, for having me come out and getting to spread the word with you. Anytime. Almost anytime. Anytime. Well, anytime. Anytime you want to make it out here. Anytime I can get a hold of Corinne. Get a hold of Corinne. She can schedule me to come out. Provide her with something that titillates us, and you'll we be could, on the show. We could do a whole other one. It would be nothing to do with dogs. Just all those That's fine. All those things that have happened to me that are... You see what we're working with here. You right. got to wait till you can fill up a thing full of titillating subject ideas. And be warned, next time you're here, we're going to have our little dials <laughs> with a light in the middle. Yeah. So you'll be getting... Oh, Ron will probably break that thing. Oh, yeah. It just <laughs> depends on the I'll story. see you come to the door, and I'm just going to turn it to full blast. That's it. Red, li- red light. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Yanni. Red Thank hot. you, Brody. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Phil. Good Thank seeing you, yeah, Ron. Thanks, Ron. Thank you, Corinne. Clay Newcomb. Newcomb, thanks for joining, Thank man. Thank you, Clay. Hey, thanks for having me. Pleasure. It's good Bye. to see you, Ron. Love you, Clay. 
Clay, yeah, Clay and I talked five years ago when I first started the podcast. Oh, that's cute. You didn't know him at all back then. No. Yeah, it's true. We, we go way back. All right, boys. See you. All right, see ya. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear.